Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets podcast. My guest today is literally the legendary. They say legendary about a lot of people, but this guy is legendary. Andrew Luke Oldham. I remember getting email the first time about the turn of the century. I said, Andrew Luke Oldham. Saw him on the back of all those Stones album covers. It's like... Great to have you here, Andrew. Thank you, Bob. Good to be with you again, our second round. Right. Well, as I say, uh, I went to Bogota in September of 2013, and I knew that Andrew was there, and we connected. That was the best place, certainly, I've been to this century, maybe ever, in that you really feel vibrantly alive in Bogota. Tell the audience how you ended up in Bogota. I went in at the end of 1974 in London to a theater that was showing a musical comedy called John, Paul, George, Ringo, and Bert, written by a guy called William, Willie Russell. Uh, I have no idea what it was about. One, probably because the condition I arrived in at the theater, and two, that the, that <laughs> condition was accelerated by there being this lady um, in front of me in the theater, uh, who I've now been married to 41 years, uh, but I was just, all I can tell you about that show was her neck. And uh, we spent time together. I was living in New York at the time. And she came to visit me in New York. She went back to Columbia and I followed her. Okay, and since we're on Columbia, what is the situation with the FARC? Supposedly peace was made in Colombia. Is it really peace? For those who don't know, there's been decades of a revolutionary army terrorizing, causing unrest in Colombia, but supposedly peace has been made. I wouldn't call them revolutionary. They're basically businessmen in fatigues because their main business over the last 30 years was drugs. They took over the drug business once Escobar oh, really? was killed. Uh, and the other towns couldn't stand up to the pressure of the FARC and the ELN, the other ones, who they've still no peace with. Um, and... Kidnapping and, and drug exportation was their main business for the last 30 years. The president that we that we have, Santos, once he got his Nobel Prize, man, you know, he's just left Colombia. He will just leave Colombia to sort it out. So you've got um, anywhere from twelve to 20,000 men or kids. I would think the kids are more the danger because if you've just been raised that you don't know much more about life than to rape and pillage, what are you going to be, an Uber driver? (laughs) (laughs) So they've got that. That's going to take, and the amount of money that has been put aside in a country that is just, it's the fifth world now, Bob. It's as simple as that. It's not the third world anymore. So it's gotten worse, or the rest of us have pulled ahead? you, You think you've pulled ahead? Oh, I, well, this is another conversation. I'd be glad okay. to have another podcast of what's going on in our country. But my point is, for those most people have not been to Colombia. Never mind been to South America. You know, we're Americans. We okay. don't have passports. So the question would become: Is now in the last twenty years, and now with peace with the FARC, generally speaking, is the economy better or worse? I think this, the one thing that's common with the rest of the world is the the. Uh, middle class is being suppressed out of any remaining peso or dollar they've got, which is going on everywhere. So it's got better for those who had it better anyway. So it's literally just like the rest of the world. Exactly. I mean, we look better because, you know, we we were for a while until your um, uh, recent uh, change. Right. <laughs> Donnie, Donnie. Um, it, we were the only friend that North America had. 
with I, I mean, we were the only, everything else was, you know, I mean, Venezuela at one time changed his clock half an hour. Right. So it wasn't, but Argent, they're all, we, we were the one that America was going to because you, you could all spend so much money and give us so much money for supposedly eradicating drugs. Yes. I'm, I'm, I've never voted, so I'm pretty cynical about the whole um, system. Uh, well, then I, got, I have to ask you, so, 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 if we're talking all these political things, right. what is your view of Brexit and the European Union? Um, I, I, again, you've got David Cameron behaved exactly the way that our president, okay, I've done it, I've got my Nobel Prize, uh, I'm off. He did the Brexit thing, he left, and isn't that two, two, two years ago at least? Right, almost. Um, it's... Uh, it's a tremendous mess. I think it would be better if they didn't do it. And I think that could, that could happen. It would be interesting. I was actually I was hanging with Billy Bragg, who's very political, and he thought it might I want to read either. his book. Right, I have it. Skiffle book. Yeah, exactly. Yes. He sent it to me. Ah. Um, but before our audience, we <laughs> goes, wanna, they want to know who you are. Surf, right. okay, yeah. le- okay, you're most legendary ah. for the Rolling Stones, Immediate <clears throat> Records, and it goes on. For Tony Calder recently died. Yes, he did. He was your partner in immediate. In immediate, records. yes, he was. Okay, but as I say, you are born in what year? Forty-four. Forty-four. So, through the fifties, was music your focus, or did you were you an opportunist? How did you end up getting into the music scene in the early sixties? Through fashion, because I mean, I mean, I left school at sixteen. The first job was at sixteen. Um, and I wish so many more kids could leave school at 16. You know, okay. Education is a crime. But we won't go there. Um, oh, I would like to go yeah. there. I think, you know, education is basically to keep people in line as there opposed to be creative. Exactly. Exactly. You know, to, go, to start going to work at 24 or 26 is criminal. Right. But um, they're not all as blessed as we who were kicked out and had to get on with it. <laughs> right. But I did that. In the first place, I wanted to work where the carpets were thick and the teacups were thin. And I landed up with a lady called Mary Quant. Uh, Legendary fashion right? designer. Um, who had a sort of Kama Sutra or Redbird records of fashion that worked in that her husband was the hustler. She cut and did the clothes. The husband hustled and sold. And they also had an old school friend who made sure they got paid. Old school, <laughs> interesting euphemism. Yeah. Anyway, it worked. And I had a great education. The pop, the, the fashion business was the pop well, 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 business. What was your gig with Mary Quant? Gopher. Gopher. And you yeah. just showed up and say, I'll do anything, and she hired you? Yes. Wow. I mean, I just, that's the place. I only wanted to knock on one door. I don't like this committee business, even now. I think you've got to pick where you want to go and go there. Okay, well, what was your spiel that's such that she hired you? You know, I can never remember the actual moments of, because I'm so fucking nervous going in, like that I know it, it works, but I can't. Uh, somebody else in the room would have to tell you what my pitch was. Okay, you go into a zone when you're in those situations. Exactly. In any event, she does hire you. She hires me. I last there for eight or nine months because... uh, And we're in what year? This is 61. Okay. Um, And I then start taking a job in the nights working at the original Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club. And my job there was hanging the coats. Was that another thing where you said, I have to work at Ronnie Scott's? Yes. Oh, yes because um, I'd been given a great education of music when I was about 11 by a guy next door during the years where you could sit with a guy next door and not get molested. Um, <laughs> is that because the 
is because they didn't molest you or the cops weren't there? You didn't have the, we're all stars, even though we're a star molester or we're star, you know, the, the rights of entitlement where you think you've got the right to intrude on somebody else. There was less of that. Although the other thing, of course, is... I know, mean, we know that's against the law, right. but being gay was against the law anyway. Right, but you can't even touch another kid. If you put, you know, it's it's amazing world we live in. But in any event, you're with your next-door neighbor. And, I, and so when I was 11, he ran me through everything from um, uh, Ahmad Jamal to Bob Crosby and the... You know, the brother of Bing Crosby, right. the Bobcats, the the Red Norvo, um, uh, the the one thing that really made a dent on my mind and on Lou Adler because he used it as the uh, prototype for Carol King uh, was George Shearing with Peggy Lee live in Chicago. It's in 1953 or 1954. Really? Record. I mean, I don't know that record. I certainly know those people. Beauty I, and the Beat. Okay. If I track that record down, I'm going to hear Tapestry? Yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. The sound, it's there. Okay. It's there. Um, great, especially with the instrumental Satin, Satin Doll on it, which I think yeah, it's George Shearing Quintet and Peggy okay. Lee. Um, so I went to work for Ronnie Scott's. So I hung the coats. I got the Pakistani food from uh, over the road as they didn't have a food license. Uh, then I kind of got greedy and I um, went to work the midnight to 5 a.m. shift at the Flamingo Club which was um, owned by a guy called Jeff Kruger who had Ember Records, but he rented the place out that night to the Gunnell Brothers, who you might have heard of from Chris Farlow, Zoot Money, and all those kind of people. Yes. And I served the whiskey and the Coke bottles because if the cops came in, Andy looked innocent and looked like he wouldn't be serving scotch. Um, and so I did that. Then basically I had my first nervous breakdown, um, the others don't count. The first one is the most important. Okay, so you're how old when you have your first nervous breakdown? Uh, 61, I'm uh, 17. And how do you know you're having a nervous breakdown? Well, you've taken on too much. Too much. Three jobs in a week is... Uh, and do you feel building? you're building up to it, or you just freak out at one point? Building up, then... I wouldn't call it freak out. Then you decide travel will be the cure. So I went to the south of France... And it's interesting. It's kind of like the Rod Stewart song, you know, every picture tells a story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I kind of, um, I ended up there. And it's um, interesting being back in this location because in a restaurant up there this past spring, I was able to say hello for the first time to Johnny Halliday. Really? Before he passed? Yes. Because when I was 17, it was a very good year. And I worked in Jouan Lapin at a, an English tea room, serving tea, of course. Um, and at the end of the block, he was already in a white tux playing the casino, and he was only nine months or eight, eight months older than me. And I went, well, <laughs> you know, first of all, you go, you don't go, something's wrong, but you go, well, there's hope, man. You know, I mean, the other rockers like Eddie Mitchell and Dick Rivers were playing cafes, and I was attracted to all that, as bad as French rock is. I was attracted to it because it wasn't as personally bad as English rock was at the time. Cliff, <laughs> Cliff Richard, Billy Fury. Right. I mean, you know, they they were only uh, they only had an American accent when they sung. Right. Um, and so I preferred the French New Wave in the movies. I preferred their Le uh, Rock, you know, and all that with Johnny Halliday. And I'd seen him a couple of times in the two thousands in Marseille, um, which was a town that when I was 17, I couldn't go to. It was too rough then. Wow. Well, in my job, if I didn't have a job, I was begging off English tourists. 
Literally begging. Oh, yeah. Begging in that the pitch went into, okay, mainly the ones who ended up in those areas of the south of France were the Jewish well-to-do out of London who knew how to get money out for the holiday. Right. Because you're only allowed to take 50 pounds away. And so you remember when newspapers or magazines used to arrive rolled up? Of course. Well, the money would go in there and it would wow. actually turn up at your hotel. Wow. Okay. And I would put on an accent that appealed to them which I'm moving into now. But, okay. <laughs> okay. And I would go, excuse me, but um, uh, my allowance hasn't arrived from my mother. And I wonder if you could uh, lend me, if I could borrow 10 or 20 francs, and if you tell me which hotel you're in. Uh, and I did. Depended on whether I thought they were worth paying back. But the rest of it went to my water skiing lessons. <laughs> okay, so you're in the south of France. Yep. And you meet Johnny Halliday. No, I don't meet him. I saw, saw him, him saw from him. afar. Saw him from afar, and you got inspired. Yes. And then how long are you in France before you return to the island? Until the season runs up, and I'm now... Oh, I got involved in a slight Mickey Mouse type of kidnapping there, where I ran into a photographer who recently passed, a great guy called Philip Townsend, and he said, look... Uh, if you will keep this heiress locked up, she's still around. I can't remember. It's Lady something, right? Um, we can sell the stories to the stringers of the newspapers, like the Daily Mail stringer, the Express stringer, and things like that. And the girl was willing. So it wasn't really... It's all a scam. It's all a scam, of course. Um, and But unfortunately, her father had the powers to install a Schedule D notice on the newspapers, which was is the English way of, of um, uh, a newspaper can't print something if it's against the public interest okay. at that time. It was used for government things, but he used it. So we couldn't, so I let the girl go, or she, we said it's over. And by November with the season, I'm going around knocking on the doors of the stringers who didn't buy the stories, getting cash from them, and then from an English vicar. I let the English take my passport away, put, pay for me to go back home, and I started again. Mary Quant said, I can't give you your job back, Andrew, but I'll tell you where you can get a job. And she sent me to a guy called Peter Hope Lumley, whose mother had been a lady-in-waiting for the Queen, and he represented doing PR all of the um, the guy who made the shoes for the Queen, Edward Rain, Norman Hartnell who made the dresses, Hardy Amis who made prints for, you know, and stuff. So I had a very good education there. And then gradually... So you fell into PR. It was not something you said you wanted right. to do. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the sweet smell of success helped me. Right. You know, right? And then Pop was... I got my first... I was... I, I got a, had to get a job to please my mother that was real PR as opposed to the Ponzi royal type of stuff that very, I mean, that was her opinion. Right? right. So I took a job at a regular place to please my mother who did things like the British Men's Wear Guild, hated it. And I started um, uh, taking pop clients on. The first were like Mark Winter who covered the um, uh, Venus in Blue Jeans and Go Away Little Girl, Kenny Lynch who covered uh, Up on the Roof. Um and then in the wait, magic... Wait, wait, How did you get connected with them? You just knock on the door, man. Really? You know, I mean... Um, and, yeah. I mean, it's... It was I, a simpler got, time. It was a simpler time. You find out that Bob Dylan is staying um, in the Cumberland Hotel in January, either December of uh, 62 or... Jan no, January of 63. 
brought to England of the freakish of circumstances, the television director, nobody really knew who he was then, uh, goes on holiday to New York, sees him in the village, is doing a Jack London play for, for BBC, the BBC and says, look, there's this folk singer I saw. Um, I'd like him to be doing the Madhouse of Carroll Street or something like that. Right. Um, and says, I think he would be good in the background, um, singing in the background. The tapes are wiped. They don't exist anymore. Wow, I don't even okay. know this story. Okay. Right? And so he turns up in England with um, Albert Grossman. And That's the manager. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for, the, for, the listeners, for the listeners who are not steeped in 60s history. Okay, well, he's the manager. Right. Right. And, um, well, I mean, you know the genius of it. Uh, the That without Peter, I mean, Peter, Paul, and Mary... Well, let's go back to the thing. Without Albert Grossman, does Bob Dylan make it? No. Right. Of course not. No. No. And I, through a guy at The Melody Maker, which was one of our four musical papers. Which came out every week. Yes, it did. Uh, But it was the most jazz and folk opera. uh, The others were basically pop, right? And I went and knocked on the door, and I got the gig. I got the gig for ten the ten days they were there. Probably I got you were the PR guy for Bob Dylan. Yeah. Now was he so he was in that musical? Well, it's a television play, and in while the plays, it's a Jack London thing, right? And while the play's going on, at certain parts during it, he's playing the guitar in the background. So the actors go, you know, where you and I are talking, he's in the corner playing the right, guitar. Right, but he's not doing any independent gigs, or is he? No. None. Took him around London. He got to places like the jazz stores, the, the, the record stores, Dobell's Jazz and things like that. But the only gig was the television show. And one has to ask, was he as enigmatic or was he, you know, wet behind the ears at that point? In time? No. They never are, man. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been with Albert Gross. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, the, the I spent 20 minutes with him in the hotel. Um, and... That Bob Dylan is the Bob Dylan you got now. Really? Fully formed. Fully formed. Fully okay, formed. so you do the gig with Dylan. And yeah, but the point is that when I'm in the room with them and I'm watching this uh, celestial marriage between the two of them, you know, you've, you know when it, Bob, right. you've been there when it's working. Right, exactly. Um, and I'm going, but whatever this is, I want it. Okay. Because there's no don't, don't come out and go. I've got to find an act that never came into it. I just carried on what I was doing, and in that beginning of '63, so I had Bob Dylan for ten days. Then, through one of my more pop clients, I was in a television show with Mark Winter, and he was promoting "Go Away, Little Girl," his second single, the Steve Lawrence thing here, and uh, the Beatles were doing their second uh, record, "Please Please Me." And so um, I walked up to John Lennon and said, who handles you? And he said, oh, the guy with the paisley scarf in the corner. And I went over and got the gig to do their PR in London because the um, Beatles or Brian Epstein's operation was still based in Liverpool. And in the beginning of 1963, you didn't make long-distance phone calls selling a crew. I, I still remember that when you used to pay by the minute. Right. So you might, over a funeral, a birth right. would be a letter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I got the gig. Um, somebody else had a guy called Tony Barrow. Have you heard of him? Sure. Yeah. He had 
a very oppressive version of the gig because he worked at Decca, which is, you know, was not the Beatles record company. And when Decca closed at five o'clock, he would use the printers, the stamps and the envelopes to mail out Beatles stuff to people. He never got on the blower, never got on the phone. I did all of that. And in fact, when Paul McCartney was in Bogota about four years ago, and I was in the room with him, he, and he introduced me to his wife as this is Andrew, our first press agent. And I thought it might be a trick British question. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And I said, well, what about Tony Barr? He said, well, that's another story. Okay. And that I was the first one who was able to go on the street for them. I would have them during the four months I was with them. I would have them like for a day every 10 days. And because of the Rolodex of fashion that I'd walked away with uh, from Mary Quant and Peter Hope Lumley, I could get them in a wider range of places than the melody makers. Exactly. So one has to ask is, you know, of course, because it was literally an invasion in America. When you're working with the Beatles, do you sense that this is a turning point for them and it's going to be a revolution or it's just another pop band? There's a night in the, uh, the in those days, the same way as you had the Dick Clark things right. and, and that. What we had was different promoters, including the father of Sharon Osbourne and uh, other people like Arthur Howes and Tito Burns, put on... Um, Shows that would tour England, the cinemas would close for the night. And you, as they were all old theatres that had been converted to cinemas, uh, they'd do two shows a night. And the Beatles started out on a bill uh, in February of 1963, of which top of the bill was Chris Montez, Tommy Rowe, and a British singer, the straight version of Amy Winehouse, Helen Shapiro. Same thing, come same type of town, moustache, right. you know, right, right, exactly. <laughs> nice Jewish girl from North London, but without the smack. Right. Right. And had hits, like six huge top 10 records, Walking Back to Happiness uh, in, in, in 62, that were huge. And the beginning of the tour, the Beatles were bottom of the bill. And by the time, it, and it moved north, the tour. And by the time it got north, uh, they were top of the bill. They, with, uh, because of the span and the effect of Please Please Me. And in answer to your question, there was one night in the Granada Bedford where the fans were starting to break the windows from the outside. And that didn't even really go on for even Johnny Ray, who was a huge influence. I mean, he was before Elvis for all of us. But that night, I stood at the back of the theater with Brian Epstein and okay, there may have been 18, 13, 1800 kids or 800, whatever it was, but we both heard the whole world. You knew. That was the moment. Yeah. Okay, so you work with them for a number of months. Until the Rolling Stones. Okay, so very slowly, how do you end up connecting with the Rolling Stones? Very slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I used to go and hustle journalists at the Record Mirror at a pub called Dehams off Shaftesbury Avenue. There was a great guy, only recently passed, called Peter Jones. And he said to me, when I'm trying to hustle him on Chris, I, did, I was doing Chris Montez as well, Americans okay. who came through, Sam Cooke, Little Richard, all this, right? Um, I just didn't want a regular job. You wanted my, to continue. My mother was wrong, <laughs> you know, right? And I, um, uh, listen, he says, Andrew, he said, you know, our, news, our, our musical paper is called Record Mirror, which means we only write about people 
who have records. But there's this young uh, R&B fan writer who works for us called Norman Jopling. And he's so enthusiastic about this band in Richmond that we're actually going to publish a piece uh, in a couple of weeks, a small piece, but nonetheless a piece on a group that doesn't have a record um, called the Rolling Stones. He said, I think you should go and see him. And I thought, is he trying to get rid of me? Or does he have my best interest? I, and I, even though I'd been in the room with uh, Dylan and Grossman, I didn't actually want to be a manager. Right. I was fine. And I then thought, and then on Sunday nights, we would have our equivalent of the Ed Sullivan show, the Sunday night at the London Palladium. And Sunday was stay at home. You know, my mother on my shirts better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> and so you paid lip service while that process of the trousers and your Chelsea boots got polished. And you ate and then you watched um, the Palladium t- show. Yeah. Right. And that was Sunday. Right. And uh, I was I thought, well, if I don't go, how can I turn up the next Tuesday and hustle him? Right. Right. So manners it was that had me. And I found out I could, didn't have to step all the way into town. I could uh, go out on the override trains to Richmond. And I got to Richmond Station. It was George Ugomelski who promoted these gigs. Who also died just a couple years ago. That's right. Yeah. And he thought he managed them. Um, But then in in the world where, you know, there are no accidents – his father died in Switzerland, and so he nobody was minding the store. The store. The, these gigs he put on in the back uh, of the station hotel. So I went in, and I kind of um, fell in love. Um, one of the great uh, parts of it was that I really had no real affinity for your actual rhythm and blues. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Lieber and Stoller was right. my, you know, the, the Drifters was my, you know, um, so I didn't walk in there as others might have and go, oh, God, they don't do that Willie Dixon thing very well. It was all fucking magic to me. Right, 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 right. You know, this wave came over me and I um, knew that uh, that's why coming up with an expression, they're a way of life, was it was easy because they'd, I'd already been saturated with it. Um, and, you know, they were sitting down uh, – Really? In performing? Yeah, they were all, but well, because it gave you, if you've got the sweater with the holes in it and you're that left wing that you're left uh, slightly socialist where you're lining yourselves up with sharecroppers, which I've always found a little difficult exactly. for, for white middle class boys going to art school or university. Um, but nonetheless, so to make it look more authentic, didn't have enough movements to lo- to go through right. an actual show standing up as yet. But there was on stools like rhythm and blues people and and uh, or jazzers or whatever. And so you had that, which people forget as the revisionism changes uh, or, or time changes everything. You had a front line of Brian, Mick, and Keith. And it was just uh, – so, so visually – um, which was always top of my list anyway because coming out of fashion and uh, I mean when we started this conversation you said I mean, clothes went with the music what's the point of listening to the music if um, somebody doesn't know what you like 
Okay. I mean, you must have had your own equivalent of that, who, what you liked and how you looked told everybody who you were. Of course. I mean, in the early 60s, it was Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys. Oh, no matter where you right. lived, I mean, you had the striped shirts and the blue sneakers yeah. and be before these English bands hit the shores. Yeah. And then we all grew our hair. Happened in Europe, too. I mean, there were like uh, every country except France had its own version of the – and South America, too – its own version of the Stones and the Beatles – it became it finished in '67 when nobody had Rolls Royces or uh, six months in Abbey Road to make a record. But right. while they were like banging out studio records, in fact, the people who were the local, say the Swedish Stones, would be on the shows with us. Would they be basically imitating your yes. material? Yes. That's very strange. But let's, go, strange. let's go back to his club. So you're in yeah. the club. You go to see him the first time. You yeah. have the epiphany the first time. Yes. And you go and talk to the band. Yes, I do. And what do you say? Um, again, I don't remember. Well, did you pitch him as a PR person? Oh, yeah. No, no, I pitched him as a manager. I know. I pitched them without stating what I was pitching them about. They say, I want to work with you. Yeah. And were they receptive? Yes. Why do you think they were receptive? Because of you or because no one had approached them or Gomeshi? Was away. Was, right. All of those reasons and um, I'm good at, you know, I mean, I was younger than them somewhat. Um, uh, I, you know. You'd and did they think at the time, this was, a, was this a lark or was this a lifetime em employment? Nothing was a lifetime then. Man, nothing was a lifetime until February the 8th or whatever the date is the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan. Right. So... Now, you're also talking about to the era, certainly pre-internet, but also pre-calling. So they're not playing again until the following Sunday night, right? No, they would play in, on Wednesday nights at, another, at a different place. Um, I didn't see them again, though, till the next Sunday. Okay. And at that stage, I had a huge dilemma. I mean, a week was a wonderful amount of time. Right. You know, then, right? Now you're just waiting for somebody to call you back, right? Um, in that manners decreed that I would offer them to Brian Epstein because I was still working for him. And I was not only the Beatles, I was doing the beginning of Billy J. Kramer. Silla Black was going to be in a month. I'd done, I had been up to um, Liverpool and met his next find, who he assured, told me, and this, this was true, they were going to have a number one record, Jerry and the Pacemakers. And I looked at these scruffs, man, you know, like the, the coats looked like they were made out of lino. You know, right? <laughs> um, and he was right because of the song, the, the song that the Beatles had said, we're not doing it, right? The Mitch Murray song, How Do You, uh, how right. do, you, do, how do, you right? do It? Yeah. So I went, you know, I knew it wouldn't work with Brian Epstein because he was already getting a bit, right, um, uh, obsessed. And I, so I probably went like, well, Brian, right. not like Mick doing much more right, together, right? right. right? And um, he passed, and a, a guy, a guy. So, but you actually got to the point where you said, "I have this. If you're interested, can we share it?" Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you, but you undersold it so much. You said, "I'm not interested." He, I don't know if he was listening. Okay. Okay. But I still did what I would but have done. But you felt good anyway. about yourself. You said, "I gave him a shot." I wouldn't use those words. <laughs> I I did the right thing. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, though that then the editor of the. Melody maker, a guy called Jack Hutton, said, had already said to me uh, about a month before, when you need an office, Andrew, I know this uh, um, failed organist, he didn't say that, but a guy used to be play organ in the uh, Blackpool Tower and then, you know, he changed his name to Eric Easton. He was another, actually another Epstein 
Eastman, one of those, the name. Because you're now dealing with the wonderful, as with my mother's book, with the last generation of Jews in England who manicured up and became British. Right. You know, so they didn't, they were, you know, you wanted to belong. So he he was now Eric Easton. He was an agent and he, he managed um, a guitarist called Burt Whedon, a disc jockey. It was very level C. But I got an office from him for four pounds a week and oh no Andrew the long distance phone calls you know right. <laughs> all of the country was all about the long distance phone calls and it, because he was an agent and I just did mouth um, I actually probably would not have got the Rolling Stones if I hadn't made him the first partner I had uh, in it before the Towers of Babel in America um, and he was became their agent Oh, he, no, he became the co-manager with me and the agent. So when they were playing the club, they didn't have an agent? No. Okay, so... Nobody was... They, they, you've got those two structures of England. Trad jazz is poor relative skiffle. I mean, you, you know from the Billy Bragg right, book right. the history of how the Lonnie Donegan records came out um, right. of, of uh, all of that stuff. And how... The people who controlled the club circuits, I mean, either the promoters like Harold Pendleton, Giorgio with his sort of left-wing oasis that he would run, um, frowned on rhythm and blues. Right. It was a poor relative, but it did seem to be attracting younger people than the tra traditional jazz bands like Humphrey Littleton and Chris Barber had. Yeah. So it's a week later, and you show up with, at the gig, and you tell the Stones what? I now show up with Eric Easton, and then we sign him, and because of my... And when you sign him, you literally have a piece of paper. No, they came in the office. Brian was the leader. Okay. And so Brian would come in for the negotiations, and um, Charlie and Bill had jobs. Um, Mick and Keith didn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> Good. And they would sit at Lions Corner House on the corner over a couple of black teas and wait for what Brian had determined with Eric and me. And, and because of my knowledge of America through mainly Jim Lee, who had Chris Montez, but then Bob Crew and my knowledge of Phil Spector, we signed them for the management and the records. Okay, for those people who don't know, and this is, becomes very important, especially in the history of the Rolling Stones, it was licensed to the label, you owned the records. Yes. Anybody else in the UK have that deal at that time? They did. Yeah. So uh, it was not incredibly uncommon. No, but because but it was incredibly uncommon, but because I was younger than all the rest, it would get noticed all the rest. You had a pecking order of Joe Meek who did Telstar. Right. Um, who you could call, and he cut acts for Robert Stigwood. Right. Like John Layton and things like that. They did it, but they had actually learnt it from a guy called Dennis Preston who had, um, he'll be in that book, Lansdowne Studios, who did Chris Barber, therefore Lonnie Donegan. They were all independent records. So, once again, you became a student of the business. How did you know this? When I would be doing PR for anybody from like Johnny Tillotson or Brian Hyland or uh, Sam Cooke and Little Richard, I wanted to meet the managers, man. Right. You know, because they would travel with the acts and you just... You know, I mean, America was it for me from Saul Bass, the posters for those awful Otto Preminger films. The posters were better than the films. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, anything, ammunition and, and the knowledge that, that comes in or the instinct that gets developed by studying these things. You don't, don't actually have to look at a book and read it and get what's in the book. You just have to hold it 
And well, this is very well articulated. This is what people don't understand. <clears throat> they go to music schools. They think they can learn it. It's more about your sensibility matched with a passion and eyes wide open. You can feel something, especially all the greats in the music business are not educated people. They're people who operate on feel. Right. So in any event, you make a deal with the Stones. Yes. <clears throat> and how long is that deal supposed to run? Oh, uh, three or five years. Three, two, three or five years. And you have years. a lawyer who, or, or no. Eric Easton, no. just takes out the usual piece of Take paper. Take out a piece of paper, man. You know. And they say they're in. Okay, and you say you're going to make them, and what is the next step? The next step is that a pub called the Weatherby Arms, they used to rehearse, and I just said to him, hey, listen, pick out the five things that you think are the most commercial. Play them to me, and then we'll pick three, and we'll go and record them. And so there was Come On, which was a Chuck Berry B-side, Willie Dixon thing, I Want to Be Loved, and I can't remember the third thing. Okay. And so we went to Olympic Studios, right. which at that time was near Marble Arch, and it was a four-track studio. With, with whose money, Eric's? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you right. don't have any money. I don't have any money, dear, and if I did it, I'd be but, wearing it. But, but let's you be know. clear. You were the producer. For want of a better word. Okay, well, what would you consider your role to be at those? Oh, no, I, I do consider, I am the only one, if they had gone through the system where, as you know from the pictures you've seen from Abbey Row, you, everybody gets what they deserve. The Beatles got what they should have. In other words, they got a very competent George Martin who had a musical experience as well. The engineer, Norman Smith, knew about another kind of music. So all those elements could come into the Beatles when they needed it. What we had to get away from was the fact that acts before us, the English rockers and things like that, you'd have a three-hour session. They wouldn't even let them listen back to what they'd done. Wow. You know, it was just run like a, a shop steward, like a union thing. Um, and the engineer was a guy called Roger Savage. They'd given me the kid in Olympic. Um, we had the 40 quid, three hours. Five, three hours were up. At five to six, and I go, oh, got no more money, right? Right. Uh, the recordings weren't that good, right? I mean, but they weren't, they were less terrified with me than they would have been with a guy who might have been seven years older who would have felt like 50 years older. And did you give them any direction? No. You just Interestingly, when I eventually listened to the Chuck Berry record, the vocals are spot on. I mean, you know, I mean, they, they he, you think, almost think that Mick was on the Chuck Berry record singing the backup, right? Five to six, I went, all right, that's it. Uh, engineer says, well, we got to mix it. And I said, what's that? And he explained to me about the four channels or the four tracks it was on. And my attitude was, well, if I'm not here, I don't have to pay for it. Right? <laughs> so I said, you do it. I'll come back in the morning. Um, the... And that was the first single. Then, then Decca tried to fuck me. Okay, wait, 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 a little bit slower. So you cut these three tracks. Yep. And then how does it become a single? What, what's the deal? Okay, we had gone to Decca because they turned down the Beatles. Right. Um, in actual fact, one of the A&R men, as you know, picked Brian Poole and the Tremolos because it was nearer. It was Dagenham. It was, it was nearer than the Beatles being in Liverpool. Right. right. But anyway, Dick Rowe was a very bright man, the A&R man. He, he, there was no, uh, no, he just said, yeah, I'll take it, right? 
on the lease deal, but they tried, as you know, I mean, for the sake of your viewers, the lease deal is, you know, you're going to get 10 points or eight points to play with as opposed to three or four right. or two or three. And But he wanted to try and get them signed as a direct act. So he said, yeah, yeah, but the recording's not that good. We want to let one of our producers have a crack at it. And they picked a guy um, who they were giving the gold watch to because he delivered a couple of pop things to them from 62, a guy called Michael Barkley who'd done Eden Kane. And, oh, God, I was at home going... I mean, you, I couldn't turn around to the Stones and say, play badly. Right. But uh, my version was marginally better enough that uh, they then accepted the lease deal and we were off to the races. And the first track does how well in the marketplace? It would have only gone to 38, but I bought it from 38 to 18. <laughs> because you had 45 shops. It wasn't as comp it wasn't as simple and complicated as American payola. You had 45 you didn't, you weren't greasing DJs. Right. Um, you had 45 shops that reported to the four musical newspapers and all you had to do was go in and buy 3 to 5 singles at 5 shillings and 7 pence each. Um in those shops on a Friday or Saturday. You know, it's basically the trick is making the record company fall in love with you once when you sign with them and twice when they ship the record. Right. And so the factories would go, wow, we sold three records in Wellingborough. We sold three records in North Welling Garden City. Um, and the, Roll the, the, the Rolling Stones fans, the small volume that they were at the time, were still so devoted that they knew we didn't have the money anyway to be. They said, oh, no, don't worry about it. We'll send you a post order. No, don't worry about it. We'll buy the records. And so um, a record, it only got to 18 for one week, but that was the first dent. That was the beginning. And Decca was happy. Yeah. And so then what, what happens after that? Then uh, we have to find a follow-up. And the R&B uh, basket of, of potential songs is getting smaller as people like uh, The Searchers are doing Sweets for My Sweet or uh, the B-side of the Orleans thing, which was amazing. You know, I mean, in where you're finding your songs. Um, Don't Throw Your Love Away. Yeah. Right. It was B-side by the Orleans. And um, we had nothing to record. And our one song that I suggested to them, which they never got to actually working on, was the James Ray thing, If You Gotta Make a Fool of Somebody. But somebody said, no, Andrew, Freddie and the Dreamers did that last week. <laughs> right, so that was gone, and it was getting. And we were at a rehearsal studio uh, in Great Newport Street off Leicester Square. And I just kind of think, if you're not contributing to the energy of the room, leave. You'd go to the bathroom, or do go and have a cup of tea, do something <laughs> like that. So I leave. I turn right as opposed to left, and I end up outside um, Leicester Square tube station. And getting out of a cab is John and Paul, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And as they knew me slightly right. from the months that we'd been together, it was like, what's wrong, Andy? <laughs> and I said, I haven't got a fucking song to um, record with the Rolling Stones. Oh, no problem. They were great hustlers. And in, in those early, very early well, days. Let's go back, stop for a second. Would the Beatles have made it without Brian Epstein? No. Okay. I mean, look at the pattern. 
What were they? That's why I'm asking. They were backing Johnny Gentle for the guy called Larry Parnes, who was the gay Colonel Tom Parker with Billy Fury, Marty Wilde, Joe Brown, and all these acts. How would they have made it? If if, they would have had success, but they wouldn't have. Yeah, I mean, would um, if Ed Sullivan hadn't been on holiday in Europe, would he have known what anybody was talking about? when he was offered the Beatles for the Ed Sullivan show. Exactly. But he'd experienced it because on a holiday with his wife, he they'd stopped in an airport, and what is this pandemonium? Oh, it's a group called the Beatles who are playing there. So these things are all destiny. Right. So in any event, you're saying they're great hustlers. Yeah. But hustlers for what? It's like, as we were still getting out of the trap that had been set for us by losing or winning World War II, the future, if you're not, if you weren't part of the elite anyway, right? Um, you're, any day you stay, you know, the, oh, this is still working. And, and it was, you know, <laughs> right. right, you know, America changed it. But to see then, because of our, we all idolized America, and you know, I could sit and look at a 45 record and the credits or the Nat Hentoff notes for Dylan or whatever, and just, this could, this would just go on forever. You know, you right. just, it would just inspire you. So they hustled to see their names on records as writers that, of records that wouldn't, nece- they weren't necessarily going to pay the rent. That was not the point. I mean, as you know, and have said often, you know, right. if you come in into this for the money, right, mm, right, uh, that's not quite enough. If you turn out to be good at money, God bless you. Right. Right. And so they come down. I, the moment I heard Brian Jones play the bottleneck on this I Want to Be Your Man, I just fucking died. I went, we got a hit, right? And okay, but a little bit slower. You run into them at the Lester... Lester uh, Shouts, they're days. getting out of cab. They have just won their first songwriting honor, so they're clairvoyantly tipsy. Okay, and they literally come straight to the studio. Straight to the studio. Not, oh, I'll be there in tomorrow. No, no, then. And then they, they got de- an Ivor Novello Award, which is your sort right. of Right. They demonstrate the song and the Stones yeah. learn it just that fast. They pretend that um, uh, they're finishing it in front of us. Ringo had recorded it 10 days before, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and. I, oh, lordy, you know, I mean, it was the next apparition after having heard them for the first time. So I didn't even bother to produce the record. I let Eric, I went to Paris, this is my second nervous breakdown, because I wanted a pair of uh, 45-pound butter leather boots from Pierre Cardin. Okay. That would solve my problem. Okay. I had had, you see, when I worked for Mary Quant, I had had a photographer who was about 15 years older than me when I was 17 at Mary Quant, say, you know, Andrew, you're an alcoholic, right? And I said, Terry, I don't even, Donovan, the photographer, I said, I don't even drink. He said, no, but you've got the isms. <laughs> okay. okay? Um, and 45-pound boots are part of the isms. Okay, but you disappear just when the record is being made. Yeah. I, I, There's going to be no problem, man. You know, I mean. So uh, Eric could handle Feliciano it. Feliciano could have done it. Oh, okay. he could have done. He could have done. Feliciano could have done the video. Okay, it was that much of a breeze. I mean, I heard it in the rehearsal room, um, and it was just magic. And how long did you go to France for? Four days. Okay, so you, you know, come back and ready to work. Ready to work. And Decca hears the tracks. Excited, they put it out. And well, Decca, the same way as when they tried to shaft me out of the licensing deal, they would have meetings at 10.30 every Tuesday morning 
where they would decide what they were taking, what they were putting out. So even it's still, you couldn't call somebody, I got a hit. No, you would submit it and it would go into the Tuesday morning A&R meeting. And then they would call you back. It was all very, well, we didn't, you know, I didn't, corporate. I didn't see records till I saw the boot of Sonny Bono's car. Right. Or Red, you know, or, or, or Buddha, those people. Not Buddha, the ones with Kama Sutra. But, and then they would say, we're releasing it on uh, November the 18th. It was all very... But just because this is interesting, how long after it was cut did it come out? See, cut in um, August, uh, six weeks. Okay. Yeah. So it comes out, do you buy a hit or is it an immediate hit? Um, we buy it. Okay. It goes to number 10. You're on the way from 18 to 10. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Hi, everyone. This is Bob Lefsetz. If you stumbled upon this podcast on iTunes or TuneIn, you may be wondering, who is this guy? Well, my story and the story of my blog, The Left Sets Letter, was told in episode one. Please check it out. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the podcast today, and you'll hear my interviews with songwriters, performers, music industry, and tech executives first. Also, I'm open to feedback. What do you like? What do you hate? Email me at bob at leftsets.com. And now, more with Andrew Lou Goldham. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is literally the legendary. They say legendary about a lot of people, but this guy is legendary. Andrew Lug Oldham. I remember getting email the first time about the turn of the century. I said, Andrew Lug Oldham. So I'm on the back of all those Stones album covers. It's like... Great to have you here, Andrew. Thank you, Bob. Good to be with you again, our second round. Right. Well, as I say, uh, I went to Bogota in September of 2013, and I knew that Andrew was there, and we connected. That was the best place, certainly, I've been to this century, maybe ever, hmm. in that you, you really feel vibrantly alive in Bogota. Tell the audience how you ended up in Bogota. I went in at the end of 1974 in London to a theater that was showing a musical comedy called John, Paul, George, Ringo, and Bert, written by a guy called William, Willie Russell. Uh, I have no idea what it was about. One, probably because the condition I arrived in at the theater, and two, that the, that <laughs> condition was accelerated by there being this lady um, in front of me in the theater, uh, who I've now been married to 41 years, uh, but I was just, all I can tell you about that show was her neck. And uh, we spent time together. I was living in New York at the time. And she came to visit me in New York. She went back to Columbia and I followed her. Okay, and since we're on Columbia, what is the situation with the FARC? Supposedly peace was made in Colombia. Is it really peace? For those who don't know, there's been decades of a revolutionary army terrorizing, causing unrest in Colombia, but supposedly peace has been made. I wouldn't call them revolutionary. They're basically businessmen in fatigues because their main business over the last 30 years was drugs. They took over the drug business once Escobar oh, really? was killed. Uh, and the other towns couldn't stand up to the pressure of the FARC and the ELN, the other ones, who they've still no peace with. Um, and... Kidnapping and, and drug exportation was their main business for the last 30 years. The president that we, that we have, Santos, once he got his Nobel Prize, man, you know, he's just left Colombia. He will just leave Colombia to sort it out. So you've got 
um, anywhere from twelve to 20,000 men or kids. I would think the kids are more the danger because if you've just been raised that you don't know much more about life than to rape and pillage, what are you going to be, an Uber driver? <laughs> <laughs> so they've got that. That's going to take and the amount of money that has been put aside in a country that is just – it's the fifth world now, Bob. It's as simple as that. It's not the third world anymore. So it's gotten worse or the rest of us have pulled ahead? Oh, you, you think you've pulled ahead? Oh, I, well, this is another conversation. I'd be glad okay. to have another podcast of what's going on in our country. But my point is for those – most people have not been to Colombia, never mind been to South America. You know, we're Americans. We okay. don't have passports. So the question would become is now in the last 20 years and now with Peace with the FARC, generally speaking, is the economy better or worse? I think there's, the one thing that's common with the rest of the world is the, the – uh, middle class is being suppressed out of any remaining peso or dollar they've got, which is going on everywhere. So it's got better for those who had it better anyway. So it's literally just like the rest of the world. Exactly. I mean, we look better because, you know, we, we were for a while until your um, uh, recent uh, change. Right. <laughs> Donnie, Donnie. Um, it, we were the only friend that North America had. With, I, I mean, we were the only, everything else was, you know, I mean, Venezuela at one time changed his clock half an hour. Right. So it wasn't, but Argent, they're all, we, we were the one that America was going to because you, you could all spend so much money and give us so much money for supposedly eradicating drugs. Yes. I'm, I'm, I've never voted, so I'm pretty cynical about the whole um, system. Uh, well, then I, got, I have to ask you, so, 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 if we're talking all these political things, right. What is your view of Brexit and the European Union? Um, I, I, again, you've got David Cameron behaved exactly the way that our president, okay, I've done it. I've got my Nobel Prize. Uh, I'm off. He did the Brexit thing. He left. And isn't that two, two, two years ago at least? Right, almost. Um, it's, uh, it's a tremendous mess. I think it would be better if they didn't do it. And I think that could, that could happen. It'll be interesting. I was actually I was hanging with Billy Bragg, who's very political, and he thought it might. I want to read either. his book. Right, I have a skiffle it. book. Yeah, exactly. Yes. He sent it to me. Huh. Um, but before our audience, we <laughs> goes, go on a, I want to know who you are. Self, right? Okay, mm. Le okay, you're most legendary ah. for the Rolling Stones, Immediate Records, <clears throat> and it goes on for Tony Calder. Recently, died. yes, he did. He was your partner in Immediate. In Immediate, Records. yes, he was. Okay, but as I say, you are born in what year? 44. 44. So through the 50s, was music your focus or did you were you an opportunist? How did you end up getting into the music scene in the early 60s? For, through fashion because I mean, I mean I left school at 16. The first job was at 16 um, and I wish so many more kids could leave school at 16. You know, okay. Education is a crime, but we won't go there. No, um, I would like to go yeah. there. I think, you know, education is basically to keep people in line as there opposed to be creative. Exactly. Exactly. You know, to, go, to start going to work at 24 or 26 is criminal. Right. But um, they're not all as blessed as we who were kicked out and had to get on with it. <laughs> right. But when I did that. In the first place, I wanted to work where the carpets were thick and the teacups were thin. And I landed up with a lady called Mary Quant. Uh, Legendary fashion right? designer. Um, who had a sort of Kama Sutra or Redbird records of fashion that worked in that her husband was the hustler. She cut and did the clothes. The husband hustled and sold. And they also 
had an old school friend who made sure they got paid. Old school, <laughs> interesting euphemism. Yeah. Anyway, it worked. And I had a great education. The pop, the, the fashion business was the pop well, well, business. Well, what was your gig with Mary Quant? Gopher. Gopher. And you yeah. just showed up and say, I'll do anything, and she hired you? Yes. Wow. I mean, I just, that's the place. I only wanted to knock on one door. I don't like this committee business, even now. I think you've got to pick where you want to go and go there. Okay, well, what was your spiel that's such that she hired you? You know, I can never remember the actual moments of, because I'm so fucking nervous going in, like that I know it, it works, but I can't. Uh, somebody else in the room would have to tell you what my pitch was. Okay, you go into a zone when you you're bet. in those situations. Yes, exactly. In any event, she does hire you. She hires me. I last there for eight or nine months because... Uh, and we're in what year? This is 61. Okay. Um, and I then start taking a job in the nights working at the original Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club. And my job there was hanging now, was, the coats. Was that another thing where you said, I have to work at Ronnie Scott's? Yes. Oh, yes. Because um, I'd been given a great education of music when I was about 11 by a guy next door during the years where you could sit with a guy next door and not get molested. Um, <laughs> is that because the <laughs> is because they didn't molest you or the cops weren't there? You didn't have the, we're all stars, even though we're a star molester or we're star, you know, the, the rights of entitlement where you think you've got the right to intrude on somebody else. There was less of that. Although the other thing, of course, is... I mean, I, we know that's against the law, right. but being gay was against the law anyway. Right, but you can't even touch another kid. If you put, you know, it's it's amazing world we live in. But in any event, you're with your next-door neighbor. And, I, and so when I was 11, he ran me through everything from um, uh, Ahmad Jamal to Bob Crosby and the, you know, the brother of Bing Crosby, right. the Bobcats, the the Red Norvo, um, uh, the, the one thing that really made a dent on my mind and on Lou Adler because he used it as the... Uh, prototype for Carol King uh, was George Shearing with Peggy Lee live in Chicago. It's a 1953 or 1954. Really? Record. I mean, I don't know that record. I certainly know those people. Beauty I, and the Beat. Okay. If I track that record down, I'm going to hear Tapestry? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The sound, it's there. Okay. It's there. Um, great, especially with the instrumental Satin, Satin Doll on it, which I think yeah, it's George Shearing quintet and Peggy okay. Lee. Um so I went to work for Ronnie Scott's. I hung the coats. I got the Pakistani food from uh, over the road as they didn't have a food license. Uh, then I kind of got greedy and I um, went to work the midnight to 5 a.m. shift at the Flamingo Club, which was um, owned by a guy called Jeff Kruger who had Ember Records. But he rented the place out that night to the Gunnell Brothers, who you might have heard of from Chris Farlow, Duke Money and all those kind of people. Yes. And I served the whiskey and the Coke bottles because if the cops came in, Andy looked innocent and looked like he wouldn't be serving scotch. Um, and so I did that. Then basically I had my first nervous breakdown. Um, the others don't count. The first one is the most important. Okay, so you're how old when you have your first nervous breakdown? Uh, 61, I'm uh, 17. And how do you know you're having a nervous breakdown? Well, you've taken on too much. Two, three jobs in a week is... Uh, and do you feel building? you're building up to it or you just freak out at one point? Building up, then I wouldn't call it freak out. Then you decide travel will be the cure. So I went to the south of France and it's interesting. It's kind of like the Rod Stewart song, you know, every picture tells a story. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I kind of, um, I ended up there and it's um, interesting being back in this location because in a restaurant up there this past spring, I was able to say hello for the first time to Johnny Halliday. 
Really? Before he passed? Yes. Because when I was 17, it was a very good year. And I worked in Jules and Lapin at a, an English tea room serving tea, of course. Um, and at the end of the block, he was already in a white tux playing the casino. And he was only nine months or eight, eight months older than me. And I went, well, <laughs> you know, first of all, you go, you don't go, something's wrong. But you go, well, there's hope, man. You know, I mean, the other rockers like Eddie Mitchell and Dick Rivers were playing cafes. And I was attracted to all that, as bad as French rock is. I was attracted to it because it wasn't as personally bad as English rock was at the time. Cliff, <laughs> Cliff Richard, Billy Fury. Right. I mean, you know, they, they, were only, uh, they only had an American accent when they sung. Right. Um, and so I preferred the French New Wave in the movies. I preferred their Le uh, Rock, you know, and all that with Johnny Halliday. And I'd seen him a couple of times in the 2000s in Marseille, um, which was a town that when I was 17, I couldn't go to. It was too rough then. Wow. Well, in my job, if I didn't have a job, I was begging off English tourists. Literally begging. Oh, yeah. Begging in that the pitch went into, okay, mainly the ones who ended up in those areas of the south of France were the Jewish well-to-do out of London who knew how to get money out for the holiday. Right. Because you're only allowed to take 50 pounds away. And so you remember when newspapers or magazines used to arrive rolled up? Of course. Well, the money would go in there and it would wow. actually turn up at your hotel. Wow. Okay. And I would put on an accent that appealed to them, which I'm moving into now. Bob. Okay. <laughs> okay. And I would go, excuse me, but um, uh, my allowance hasn't arrived from my mother. And I wonder if you could... Uh, lend me if I could borrow 10 or 20 francs and if you tell me which hotel you're in. Uh, and I did. Depended on whether I thought they were worth paying back. But the rest of it went to my water skiing lessons. <laughs> okay, so you're in the south of France yep. and you meet Johnny Halliday. No, I don't meet him. I saw him, him saw from him. afar. Saw him from afar and you got inspired. Yes. And then how long are you in France before you return to the island? Until the season runs up and I'm now... Oh, I got involved in a slight Mickey Mouse type of kidnapping there where I ran into a photographer who recently passed, a great guy called Philip Townsend. And he said, look... Uh, if you will keep this heiress locked up, she's still around. I can't remember. It's Lady something, right? Um, we can sell the stories to the stringers of the newspapers, like the Daily Mail stringer, the Express stringer, and things like that. And the girl was willing. So it wasn't really... It's all a scam. It's all a scam, of course. Um, and But unfortunately, her father had the powers to install a Schedule D notice on the newspapers, which was is the English way of, of um, uh, a newspaper can't print something if it's against the public interest okay. at that time. It was used for government things, but he used it. So we couldn't, so I let the girl go, or she, we said it's over. And by November with the season, I'm going around knocking on the doors of the stringers who didn't buy the stories, getting cash from them, and then from an English vicar. I let the English take my passport away, put, pay for me to go back home, and I started again. Mary Quant said, I can't give you your job back, Andrew, but I'll tell you where you can get a job. And she sent me to a guy called Peter Hope Lumley, whose mother had been a lady-in-waiting for the Queen, and he represented doing PR all of the um, the guy who made the shoes for the Queen, Edward Rain, Norman Hartnell who made the dresses, Hardy Amis who made prints, for, you know, and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I had a very good education there. 
and then gradually. So you fell into PR. It was not something you said you wanted right. to do. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, the sweet smell of success helped me. Right. You know. Right. And then pop was. I got my first. I was. I, I got. A, had to get a job to please my mother that was real PR as opposed to the Ponzi royal type of stuff that very, I mean, that was her opinion. Right? right. So I took a job at a regular place to please my mother who did things like the British Men's Wear Guild, hated it. And I started um, uh, taking pop clients on the first were like Mark Winter who covered the um, uh, Venus in Blue Jeans and Go Away Little Girl, Kenny Lynch who covered uh, Up on the Roof. Um and then in the wait, magic... Wait, wait, wait. How did you get connected with them? You just knock on the door, man. Really? You know, I mean... Um, and, yeah. I mean, it's... It was I, a simpler I got, time. It was a simpler time. You find out that Bob Dylan is staying um, in the Cumberland Hotel in January, either December of 62 uh, or no, January of 63. Brought to England under the freakish of circumstances, the television director... Nobody really knew who he was then. Uh, goes on holiday to New York, sees him in the village, is doing a Jack London play for, for, BBC, for the BBC and says, look, there's this folk singer I saw. Um, I'd like him to be doing the Madhouse of Carroll Street or something like that. Right. right? Um, and says, I think he would be good in the background, um, singing in the background. The tapes are wiped. They don't exist anymore. Wow, I don't even okay. know this story. Okay. Right? And so he turns up in England with um, Albert Grossman. And That's the manager. Oh yeah, <laughs> for the for the listeners for the listeners who are not steeped in sixties history. Okay, well he's the manager, right? Right, and um, well, I mean, you know the genius of it. Uh, the that without Peter, I mean Peter Paul and Mary. Well, Al let's go back to the thing. Without Albert Grossman, does Bob Dylan make it? No. Right. Of course not. No. No. And I. Through a guy at the Melody Maker, which was one of our four musical papers, which it came was, out every week. Yes, it did. Uh, but it was the most jazz and folk opera. Where, op, uh, the others were basically pop, right? And I went and knocked on the door, and I got the gig. I got the gig for ten. The ten days they were there, probably I got. You a, were the PR guy for Bob Dylan. Yeah. Now was he? So he was in that musical. Well, it's a television play, and in while the plays, it's a Jack London thing, right? And while the play is going on, at certain parts during it, he's playing the guitar in the background. So the actors go, you know, you and I are talking, he's in the corner playing the right, guitar. Right, but he's not doing any independent gigs, or is he? No. None. Took him around London. He got to places like the jazz stores, the, the, the record stores, Dobell's Jazz and things like that. But the only gig was the television show. And one has to ask, was he as enigmatic or was he, you know, wet behind the ears at that point in time? No. They never are, man. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been with Albert Grossman, <laughs> right? I mean, the the I spent twenty minutes with him in the hotel, um, and that Bob Dylan is the Bob Dylan you got now. Really, fully formed. Fully formed. Fully okay, formed. so you do the gig with Dylan, and yeah, but the point is that when I'm in the room with them, and I'm watching this uh, celestial marriage between the two of them, you know, you you know when it. Well, right. You've been there when it's working. Right, exactly. Um, and I'm going, well, whatever this is, I want it. 
Okay. Because there's no, don't, don't come out and go, I've got to find an act. That never came into it. I just carried on what I was doing. And in that beginning of 63, so I had Bob Dylan for 10 days. Then through one of my more pop clients, I was in a television show with Mark Winter. And he was promoting Go Away Little Girl, his second single, the Steve Lawrence thing here. And uh, the Beatles were doing their second uh, record, Please Please Me. And so um, I walked up to John Lennon and said, who handles you? And he said, oh, the guy with the paisley scarf in the corner. And I went over and got the gig to do their PR in London because the um, Beatles or Brian Epstein's operation was still based in Liverpool. And in the beginning of 1963, you didn't make long-distance phone calls selling a crew. I, I still remember that when you used to pay by the minute. Right. So you might, over a funeral, a birth right. would be a letter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. And I got the gig. Um, somebody else had a guy called Tony Barrow. Have you heard of him? Sure. Yeah. He had a very oppressive version of the gig because he worked at Decca, which is, you know, was a, not the Beatles record company. Right. And when Decker closed at five o'clock, he would use the printers, the stamps, and the envelopes to mail out Beatles stuff to people. He never got on the blower, never got on the phone. I did all of that. And in fact, when Paul McCartney was in Bogota about four years ago, and I was in the room with him, he, and he introduced me to his wife as this is Andrew, our first press agent. And I thought it might be a trick British question. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And I said, well, what about Tony Barry? He said, well, that's another story. Okay. In that, I was the first one who was able to go on the street for them. I would have them, during the four months I was with them, I would have them like for a day every 10 days. And because of the Rolodex of fashion that I'd walked away with uh, from Mary Quant and Peter Hope Lumley, I could get them in a wider range of places than the, the melody makers. Yes, exactly. So... One has to ask, you know, of course, because it was literally an invasion in America. When you're working with the Beatles, do you sense that this is a turning point for them and it's going to be a revolution or it's just another pop band? There's a night in the, uh, the in those days, the same way as you had the Dick Clark things right. and, and that. What we had was different promoters, including the father of Sharon Osbourne and uh, other people like Arthur Howes and Tito Burns, put on... Um, Shows that would tour England, the cinemas would close for the night. And you, as they were all old theatres that had been converted to cinemas, uh, they'd do two shows a night. And the Beatles started out on a bill uh, in February of 1963, of which top of the bill was Chris Montez, Tommy Rowe, and a British singer, the straight version of Amy Winehouse, Helen Shapiro. Same thing, come same type of town, right. moustache, you know, right, right, exactly. <laughs> nice Jewish girl from North London, but without the smack. Right. Right. And had hits, like six huge top 10 records, Walking Back to Happiness uh, in, in, in 62, that were huge. And the beginning of the tour, the Beatles were bottom of the bill. And by the time, and it moved north, the tour. And by the time it got north, uh, they were top of the bill. It, with, uh, because of the span and the effect of Please Please Me. And in answer to your question, there was one night in the Granada Bedford where the fans were starting to break 
the windows from the outside. And that didn't even really go on for even Johnny Ray, who was a huge influence. I mean, he was before Elvis for all of us. But that night, I stood at the back of the theater with Brian Epstein. And, okay, there may have been 18, 13, 1800 kids or 800, whatever it was, but we both heard the whole world. You knew. That was the moment. Yeah. Okay, so you work with them for a number of months. Until the Rolling Stones. Okay, so very slowly, how do you end up connecting with the Rolling Stones? Very slowly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I used to go and hustle journalists at the Record Mirror at a pub called Dehams off Shaftesbury Avenue. There was a great guy, only recently passed, called Peter Jones. And he said to me when I'm trying to hustle him on Chris I did I was doing Chris Montez as well Americans okay. who came through Sam Cooke Little Richard all this right um, I just didn't want a regular job you wanted my, to continue my mother was wrong <laughs> you know right and I um, uh, listen he says Andrew he said you know our, news, our, our musical paper is called Record Mirror which means we only write about people who have records but there's this young uh, R&B fan writer who works for us called Norman Jopling. And he's so enthusiastic about this band in Richmond that we're actually going to publish a piece uh, in a couple of weeks, a small piece, but nonetheless a piece on a group that doesn't have a record um, called the Rolling Stones. He said, I think you should go and see him." And I thought, is he trying to get rid of me? Or does he have my best interest? I, and I, I, even though I'd been in the room with uh, Dylan and Grossman, I didn't actually want to be a manager. Right. I was fine. And I then thought, and then on Sunday nights, we would have our equivalent of the Ed Sullivan show, the Sunday night at the London Palladium. And Sunday was stay at home. You know, my mother on my shirts better than I did. <laughs> and so you paid lip service while that process of the trousers and your Chelsea boots got polished. And you ate and then you watched um, the Palladium t- show. Yeah. Right. And that was Sunday. Right. And uh, I was I thought, well, if I don't go, how can I turn up the next Tuesday and hustle him? Right. Right. So manners it was that had me. And I found out I could, didn't have to step all the way into town. I could uh, go out on the override trains to Richmond. And I got to Richmond Station. It was Georgia Kamelski who promoted these gigs. Who also died just a couple years ago. That's right. Yeah. And he thought he managed them. Um, But then in in the world where, you know, there are no accidents – his father died in Switzerland, and so he nobody was minding the, shore, the store. The, these gigs he put on in the back uh, of the station hotel. So I went in, and I kind of um, fell in love. Um, one of the great uh, parts of it was that I really had no real affinity for your actual rhythm and blues. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Lieber and Stoller was right. my, you know, the, the Drifters was my, you know. Um, so I didn't walk in there as others might have and go, oh, God, they don't do that Willie Dixon thing very well. It was all fucking magic to me. Right, 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 right. You know, this wave came over me and I um, 
knew that uh, that's why coming up with an expression they're a way of life was was easy because they'd i'd already been saturated with it um and you know they were sitting down uh really in performing yeah they were all, but well, because it gave you if you've got the sweater with the holes in it and you're that left wing that you're left uh, slightly socialist where you're lining yourselves up with sharecroppers which i've always found a little difficult exactly. for, for white middle class boys going to art school or university um but nonetheless so to make it look more authentic didn't have enough movements to luck to go through right at actual show standing up as yet but there was on stools like rhythm and blues people and and uh, or jazzers or whatever and so you had that which people forget as the revisionism changes uh, or, or time changes everything you had a front line of brian mick and keith and it was just uh, it's a, so visually um, which was always top of my list anyway because coming out of fashion and, uh, I mean, when we started this conversation, you said, I mean, clothes went with the music. What's the point of listening to the music if um, somebody doesn't know what you like? Okay. I mean, you must have had your own equivalent of that, who, what you liked and how you looked told everybody who you were. Of course. I mean, in the early 60s, it was Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys. Oh, and no matter where you right. lived, I mean, you had the striped shirts and the blue sneakers oh, yes. and be before these English bands hit the shores. Yeah. And then we all grew our hair. Happened in Europe, too. I mean, there were like uh, every country except France had its own version of the – and South America, too – its own version of the Stones and the Beatles – it became it finished in '67 when nobody had Rolls Royces or uh, six months in Abbey Road to make a record. But right. while they were like banging out studio records, in fact, the people who were the local, say the Swedish Stones, would be on the shows with us. Would they be basically imitating your yes. material? Yes. That's very strange. But let's go. Strange. Let's go back to his club. So you're yeah. in the club. You go to see him the first time. You yeah. have the epiphany the first time. Yes. And you go and talk to the band. Yes, I do. And what do you say? Um, again, I don't remember. Well, did you pitch him as a PR person? Oh, yeah. No, no, I pitched him as a manager. I know I pitched them without stating what I was pitching them about. They say, "I want to work with you." Yeah. And were they receptive? Yes. Why do you think they were receptive? Because of you or because no one had approached them or Gomeshi? Was away. Was, you're right. All of those reasons and um, I'm good at, you know, I mean, I was younger than them somewhat. Um, uh, I, you know. You'd and have, did they think at the time, this was, a, was this a lark or was this a lifetime in employment? Nothing was a lifetime then. Nothing was a lifetime until February the 8th or whatever the date is the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan. Right. So... Now, you're also talking about the era, certainly pre-internet, but also pre-calling. So they're not playing again until the following Sunday night, right? No, they would play in, on Wednesday nights at, another, at a different place. Um, I didn't see them again, though, till the next Sunday. Okay. And at that stage, I had a huge dilemma. I mean, a week was a wonderful amount of time. Right. You know, then, right? Now you're just waiting for somebody to call you back, right? Um, in that manners decreed that I would offer them to Brian Epstein because I was still working for him. And I was not only the Beatles, I was doing the beginning of Billy J. Kramer. Silla Black was going to be in a month. I'd done, I had been up to um, Liverpool and met his next find, who he assured, told me, and this, this was true, they were going to have a number one record, Jerry and the Pacemakers. And I looked at these scruffs, man, you know, like 
the, the coats looked like they were made out of lino. You know, <laughs> right? um, and he was right because of the song, the, the song that the Beatles had said, we're not doing it, right? The Mitch Murray song, How Do, uh, how right. do You Do, how it, do, you right? do it? Yeah. So I went, you know, I knew it wouldn't work with Brian Epstein because he was already getting a bit, right, um, uh, obsessed. And I, so I probably went like, well, Brian, right. not like Mick doing much better than right, together, right? right. right? And um, he passed, and a, a guy, a guy. So, who, but you actually got to the point where you said, "I have this. If you're interested, can we share it?" Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you, but doing, you undersold it so much. You said, "I'm not interested." He, I don't know if he was listening. Okay. Okay. But I still did what I would have done. But you done felt good anyway. about yourself. You said, "I gave him a shot." I wouldn't use those words. <laughs> I I did the right thing. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, though that, then the editor of the. Melody maker, a guy called Jack Hutton, said, had already said to me uh, about a month before, when you need an office, Andrew, I know this uh, um, failed organist. He didn't say that. The guy used to be play organ in the uh, Blackpool Tower and then, you know, he changed his name to Eric Easton. He was another, actually another Epstein Eastman, one of those, the name. Because the, the, you, you're now dealing with the wonderful, as with my mother's, with the last generation of Jews in England who manicured up and became British. Right. You know, so they didn't, they were, you know, you wanted to belong. So he he was now Eric Easton. He was an agent and he, he managed um, a guitarist called Burt Whedon, a disc jockey. It was very level C. But I got an office from him for four pounds a week. And oh, no, Andrew, the long distance phone calls. You know, right. <laughs> all of the country was all about the long distance phone calls. And it, because he was an agent and I just did mouth, um, I actually probably would not have got the Rolling Stones if I hadn't made him the first partner I had uh, in it before the Towers of Babel in America. Um, and he was became their agent. Uh, he, no, he became the co-manager with me and the agent. So when they were playing the club, they didn't have an agent? No. Okay, Nobody so... Was, they, they, you've got those two structures of England. Trad jazz is poor relative skiffle. I mean, you know from the Billy Bragg right, book right. the history of how the Lonnie Donegan records came out um, right. of, of uh, all of that stuff and how the people who controlled the club circuits, I mean, either the promoters like Harold Pendleton, Giorgio with his sort of left-wing oasis that he would run, um, frowned on rhythm and blues. Right. It was a poor relative, but it did seem to be attracting younger people than the tra traditional jazz bands like Humphrey Littleton and Chris Barber had. So it's a week later, and you show up with, at the gig, and you tell the Stones what? I now show up with Eric Easton, and then we sign him, and because of my— And when you sign him, you literally have a piece of paper. No, they came in the office. Brian was the leader. Okay. And so Brian would come in for the negotiations, and um, Charlie and Bill had jobs. Um, Mick and Keith didn't. Right. <laughs> Good. And they would sit at Lions Corner House on the corner over a couple of— black tees and wait for what Brian had determined with Eric and me. And, and because of my knowledge of America through mainly Jim Lee, who had Chris Montez, but then Bob Crew and my knowledge of Phil Spector, we signed them for the management and the records. Okay. For those people who don't know, and this is, becomes very important, especially in the history of the Rolling Stones, it was licensed to the label you owned the records. Yes. Anybody else in the UK have that deal at that time? They did. Yeah. 
So uh, it was not incredibly uncommon. No, but because but it was incredibly uncommon, but because I was younger than all the rest, it would get noticed all the rest. You had a pecking order of Joe Meek who did Telstar. Right. Um, who you could call, and he cut acts for Robert Stigwood. Right. Like John Layton and things like that. They did it, but they had actually learned it from a guy called Dennis Preston who had um, – he'll be in that book, Lansdowne Studios, who did Chris Barber, therefore Lonnie Donegan. They were all independent records. So once again, you became a student of the business. How did you know this? When I would be doing PR for anybody from like Johnny Tillotson or Brian Hyland or uh, Sam Cooke and Little Richard – I wanted to meet the managers, man. Right. You know, because they would travel with the acts and you just, you know, I mean, America was it for me from Saul Bass, the posters for those awful Otto Preminger films. The posters were better than the films. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, anything, ammunition and, and the knowledge that, that comes in or the instinct that gets developed by studying these things. You don't don't actually have to look at a book and read it. And get what's in the book. You just have to hold it. And Well, this is very well articulated. This is what people don't understand. <clears throat> they go to music schools. They think they can learn it. It's more about your sensibility matched with a passion and eyes wide open. You can feel something. Especially all the greats in the music business are not educated people. They're people who operate on feel. Right. So in any event, you make a deal with the Stones. Yes. <clears throat> and how long is that deal supposed to run? Oh, three or five years. Three, two, three or five years. And you have years. a lawyer who, or, or no, Eric Easton, no. just takes out the usual piece of just paper. Take out a piece of paper, man. You know. And they say they're in. And, okay, and you say you're going to make them, and what is the next step? The next step is that a pub called the Weatherby Arms, they used to rehearse, and I just said to him, hey, listen, pick out the five things that you think are the most commercial. Play them to me, and then we'll pick three, and we'll go and record them. And so there was Come On, which was a Chuck Berry B-side, Willie Dixon thing, I Want to Be Loved, and I can't remember the third thing. Okay. And so we went to Olympic Studios, right. which at that time was near Marble Arch, and it was a four-track studio. And with, with whose money, Eric's? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you don't right. have any money. I don't have any money, dear, and if I did it, I'd be but, wearing it. But, but let's You're be a... clear. You were the producer. For want of a better word. Okay, well, what would you consider your role to be at those? Oh, no, I, I do consider I am the only one. If they had gone through the system where, as you know from the pictures you've seen from Abbey Row, you, everybody gets what they deserve. The Beatles got what they should have. In other words, they got a very competent George Martin who had a musical experience as well. The engineer, Norman Smith, knew about another kind of music. So all those elements could come into the Beatles when they needed it. What we had to get away from was the fact that acts before us, the English rockers and things like that, you'd have a three-hour session. They wouldn't even let them listen back to what they'd done. Wow. You know, it was just run like a shop steward, like a union thing. Um, and the engineer was a guy called Roger Savage. They'd give me the kid in Olympic. Um, we had the 40 quid, three hours. Five, three hours were up. At five to six, and I go, oh, got no more money, right? Right. Uh, the recordings weren't that good, right? I mean, but they weren't, they were less terrified with me than they would have been with a guy who might have been seven years older who would have felt like 50 years older. And did you give them any direction? No. 
You just Interestingly, when I eventually listened to the Chuck Berry record, the vocals are spot on. I mean, you know, I mean, they, they he, you think, almost think that Mick was on the Chuck Berry record singing the backup, right? Five to six, I went, all right, that's it. Uh, engineer says, well, we got to mix it. And I said, what's that? And he explained to me about the four channels or the four tracks it was on. And my attitude was, well, if I'm not here, I don't have to pay for it. Right? <laughs> so I said, you do it. I'll come back in the morning. Um, the... And that was the first single. Then, then Decca tried to fuck me. Okay, wait, 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 a little bit slower. So you cut these three tracks. Yep. And then how does it become a single? What, what's the deal? Okay, we had gone to Decca because they turned down the Beatles. Right. Um, in actual fact, one of the A&R men, as you know, picked Brian Poole and the Tremolos because it was nearer. It was Dagenham. It was, it was nearer than the Beatles being in Liverpool. Right. right. But anyway, Dick Rowe was a very bright man, the A&R man. He, he, there was no, uh, no, he just said, yeah, I'll take it, right? On the lease deal, but they tried, as you know, I mean, for the sake of your viewers, the lease deal is, you know, you're going to get 10 points or eight points to play with as opposed to three or four right. or two or three. And But he wanted to try and get them signed as a direct act. So he said, yeah, yeah, but the recording's not that good. We want to let one of our producers have a crack at it. And they picked a guy um, who they were giving the gold watch to because he delivered a couple of pop things to them from 62, a guy called Michael Barkley who'd done Eden Kane. And, oh, God, I was at home going... I mean, you, I couldn't turn around to the Stones and say, play badly. Right. But... Uh, my version was marginally better enough that uh, they then accepted the lease deal and we were off to the races. And the first track does how well in the marketplace? It would have only gone to 38, but I bought it from 38 to 18. <laughs> because you had 45 shops. It wasn't as comp it wasn't as simple and complicated as American Paola. You had 45, you, didn't, you weren't greasing DJs. Right. Um, you had 45 shops that reported to the four musical newspapers and all he had to do was go in and buy three to five singles at five shillings and sevenpence each um, in those shops on a Friday or Saturday. You know, it's basically the trick is making the record company fall in love with you once when you sign with them and twice when they ship the record. Right. And so the factories would go, wow, we sold three records in Wellingborough. We sold three records in North Welling Garden City. Um, and... The, 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 the Rolling Stones fans, the small volume that they were at the time, were still so devoted that they knew we didn't have the money anyway to be. They said, oh, no, don't worry about it. We'll send you a postal order. No, don't worry about it. We'll buy the records. And so um, a record, it only got to 18 for one week, but that was the first dent. That was the beginning. And Decker was happy. Yeah. And so then what, what happens after that? Then uh, we have to find a follow-up. And the R&B uh, basket of, of potential songs is getting smaller as people like uh, The Searchers are doing Sweets for My Sweet or uh, the B-side of the Orlands thing, which was amazing. You know, I mean, in where you're finding your songs. Um, Don't Throw Your Love Away. Yeah. Right. It was B-side by the Orlands. And um, we had nothing to record. And our one song that I suggested to them 
which they never got to actually working on, was the James Ray thing, if you've got to make a fool of somebody. But somebody said, no, Andrew, Freddie and the Dreamers did that last week. <laughs> right? So that was gone. And it was getting... And we were at a rehearsal studio uh, in Great Newport Street off Leicester Square. And I just kind of think, if you're not contributing to the energy of the room, leave. Go to the bathroom or do go and have a cup of tea, do something. <laughs> like that. So I leave, I turn right as opposed to left, and I end up outside um, Leicester Square tube station. And getting out of a cab is John and Paul, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And as they knew me slightly right. from the months that we'd been together, it was like, what's wrong, Andy? <laughs> and I said, I haven't got a fucking song to um, record with the Rolling Stones. Oh, no problem. They were great hustlers. And in, in those early, very early well, days... Well, let's go back, stop for a second. Would the Beatles have made it without Brian Epstein? No. Okay. I mean, look at the pattern. What right, were they that, being... That's why I'm asking. Yeah, they were backing Johnny Gentle for the guy called Larry Parnes, who was the gay Colonel Tom Parker with Billy Fury, Marty Wilde, Joe Brown, and all these acts. How would they have made it? Right. If, if, they if, would have had success, but they wouldn't have yeah, been the I Beatles. Yeah, I mean, what, would... Um, if Ed Sullivan hadn't been on holiday in Europe, would he have known what anybody was talking about when he was offered the Beatles for the Ed Sullivan show. Exactly. But he'd experienced it because on a holiday with his wife, he they'd stopped in an airport, and what is this pandemonium? Oh, it's a group called the Beatles who are playing there. So these things are all destiny. Right. So in any event, you're saying they're great hustlers. Yeah. But hustlers for what? It's like, as we were still getting out of the trap that had been set for us by losing or winning World War II, the future, if you're not, if you weren't part of the elite anyway, right? Um, you're, any day you stay, you know, the, oh, this is still working. And, and it was, we know, <laughs> right. right, you know, America changed it. But to see then, because of our, we all idolized America, and you know, I could sit and look at a 45 record and the credits or the Nat Hentoff notes for Dylan or whatever, and just this could this would just go on forever. You know, you right. just, it would just inspire you. So they hustled to see their names on records as writers that, of records that wouldn't they weren't necessarily going to pay the rent. That was not the point. I mean, as you know and have said often, you know, right. if you come in into this for the money, right, mm, right, uh, that's not quite enough. If you turn out to be good at money, God bless you, right, right. And so they come down. I, the moment I heard Brian Jones play the bottleneck on this I Want to Be Your Man, I just fucking died. I went, we got a hit, right? And okay, but a little bit slower. You run into them at the Lister, Lister, uh, so they're station. getting out of cab. They have just won their first songwriting honor, so they're clairvoyantly tipsy. Okay. And they literally come straight to the studio. Straight to the studio. Not, oh, I'll be there in tomorrow. No, no, then. And then they, they got an Ivan Novello Award, which is your song. Right. Sort of, you know. They demonstrate the song and the Stones yeah. learn it just that fast. They pretend that um, uh, they're finishing it in front of us. Ringo had recorded it 10 days before. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, and. I, oh, lordy, you know, I mean, it was the next apparition after having heard them for the first time. So I didn't even bother to produce the record. I let Eric, I went to Paris. This is my second nervous breakdown because I wanted a pair of uh, 45 pound butter leather boots from Pierre Cardin. 
Okay. That would solve my problem. Okay. I had had, you see, when I worked for Mary Quant, I had had a photographer who was about 15 years older than me when I was 17 at Mary Quant say, you know, Andrew, you're an alcoholic, right? And I said, Terry, I don't even, Donovan, the photographer, I said, I don't even drink. He said, no, but you've got the isms. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, and 45-pound boots are part of the isms. Okay, but you disappear just when the record is being made. Yeah. I, I, it was going to be no problem, man. You know, I mean... So uh, Eric could handle it. Feliciano could have done it. Okay. Or he, done, he could have done... Feliciano could have done the video. Okay. It was that much of a breeze. I mean, I heard it in the rehearsal room. Um, and it was just magic. And how long did you go to France for? Four days. Okay, so you, you know, come back and... Ready to work. Ready to work. And Decca hears the tracks excited. They put it out and... Well, Decca, the same way as when they tried to sh shaft me out of the licensing deal, they would have meetings at 10.30 every Tuesday morning where they would decide what they were taking, what they were putting out. So even, it's still, you couldn't call somebody, I got a hit. No, you would submit it and it would go into the Tuesday morning A&R meeting. And then they would call you back. It was all very... Well, we did, you know, I didn't, corporate. I didn't see records till I saw the boot of Sonny Bono's car. Right. Or Red, you know, or, or, or Buddha, those people. Not Buddha, the ones with Kama Sutra. But, and then they would say, we're releasing it on uh, November the 18th. It was all very... But just because this is interesting, how long after it was cut did it come out? Let's see, cut in um, August, uh, six weeks. Okay. Yeah. So it comes out, do you buy a hit or is it an immediate hit? Um, we buy it. Okay. It goes to number 10. You're on the way from 18 to 10. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Hi, everyone. This is Bob Lefsetz. If you stumbled upon this podcast on iTunes or TuneIn, you may be wondering, who is this guy? Well, my story, the story of my blog, The Lefsetz Letter, was told in episode one. Please check it out. If you like what you hear, subscribe to the podcast today and you'll hear my interviews with songwriters, performers, music industry, and tech executives first. Also, I'm open to feedback. What do you like? What do you hate? Email me at bob at leftsets.com. And now, more with Andrew Lou Goldham. Now, in today's business, it's all about the live business. So as a result of selling those records... Does that increase the gigs? No. Does that change? Nothing. It's all no. about the record back then. It's all about, remember, we have only 10, 12 years out of where the big sales thing of then is still sheet music. Wow. Yeah, I gotcha. Right? I mean, you know, we're, no, we're only 15 years from the motors with a piano on the back. Not where I was raised, but where some of our other friends were the right. Who, the Who, and people like that, where the guys would go down the street with an upright piano on the back of the truck and be selling sheet music because the family entertainment. We hadn't reached the time. Uh, what well, we were reaching the time of the of home entertainment with the record player with that dropped the records and was like a, a piece of furniture. Exactly, the living room, a console. But that was only middle-class people who could afford those. Um, poor people were still the pubs, the pianos, and you know, let's get drunk singing this. So I want to be sheet, a no, sorry, so, But in answer to the sheet music was the one way to increase your gig money. 
in that, as, as you know, in England, there was an American hit like Unchained Melody. There would be the American Al, Al Hibbler version. Then there would be probably two English cover versions. And it's the one who got on the sheet music who could probably get five pounds more for a gig. Okay. Okay. So I Want to Be Your Man is out. It has a level of success. Yes. Do you know where you're going from there? No idea. So what do you end up doing? I, by then, by that time, um, am sharing rooms with uh, Mick and Keith and living with them. And um, he, Keith, one day, oh, now I know we need songs, right? So I go, you know, you have to write. And my attitude was, well, if Mick Jagger can write postcards to his girlfriend and his mother when they're doing the book, because they're by now playing ballrooms as opposed to just R&B clubs. And ballrooms are on your way to being booked on a cinema tour. And the okay. first cinema tour that they actually did was in October and November as I Want to Be Your Man went up the charts for Don Arden, for Sharon's father. Right. With the Everly Brothers, Bo Diddley, and bottom of the bill with the Rolling Stones, Mickey Most. And how was reception on that tour? It was Keith says it was university. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't go to the places where I knew they wouldn't do well. You know, um, you don't need to see that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> they can learn their chops exactly. And you know, you're on the road with Bo Diddley, with uh, Jerome and the Duchess, the Everly Brothers, who basically got the, the semblance of the crickets back in them. And that's almost the first time we've ever heard somebody better duplicate the records on stage. So it's it is university, and it um, in in the place that we were living in Wilston. Um, I would tell them they got to write a song. Now, of course, the, the concertina of time goes. I locked them up. I didn't lock them up. I just um, would take gather my laundry and go. I was going to walk back to my mother's house, still doing my ironing, right? right? You know, and uh, then I would slam the front door and pretend I've left, and I would creep back up the stairs at thirty-three Mapesbury Road to see if they were actually writing. And, and so, were they? Oh yeah, and they were. It was awful, you know, because the first stuff you write is soppy ballads. It's, it's always awful. Yeah. And so what is the first thing they write that you decide is worthy of recording? Well, it's something they didn't write. I'm such a believer that when I heard Keith just with the acoustic doing what was a B-side again, not fade away, mm -hmm. to me he'd written it. Okay, then how does Tell Me come about? Ah, around the same time. And you've got this wonderful process of where as they start to write, it's also got to pass muster with the rest of the band. Even when we'd already got to here to L.A., like with some of the songs, like I'm Free or The Singer Not The Song, you, when they run it down in front of the other three stones, you don't know one of them's going to say, oh, you fucking hell, you don't think we're going to play that piece of shit, do you? Right. You know? But, you know, but staying with Tell Me for a second, <clears throat> that was the song that closed me, not Fade Away. It was fucking great. Right. I remember them being on some New York TV show. Clay Cole? Yes, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> with, uh, with Bill Wyman, you know, with the guitar, the bass yeah. almost vertical, yeah. et cetera. So, okay. And you know why he did that? No. So he could stand on stage and, as he wasn't moving, call out his room numbers, mouth his room number. I'm just stunned. For those people who don't know, 
he has almost a photographic memory and supposedly has had uh, has slept with more women than Mick and Keith could even dream of. There you go. Right. And what do you think his magic was? Uh, you know, it didn't affect me. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So the other thing we would be remiss. Persistence. That's my question. You know, there's certain people you ask yeah. enough times, you know, yeah. the door opens. You did take Ian Stewart off stage. Yes. Can you walk us through what your thought process was there? That how – do you know any of the hurricanes apart from Johnny? No. Okay. Um, four with the Beatles and the Shadows because the, 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 the prototype of all this is the Cliff Richards backing group in terms of electric bass. Right. In terms of the lead guitar, Hank B. Marvin. Uh, that's the benchmark that you, you know, Cliff Richard and the Shadows, the Shadows, okay, therefore why were the Beatles in suits? Because the Shadows were the example. I didn't believe the public could count to five. <laughs> but you already had five. I mean six. You had six. Right, six. Six, exactly. Thank you, correct me. Uh, yes, yeah, six was, was now putting you in Johnny and the Hurricanes territory. Okay. And apart from that, um, he looked like William Bendix or Neville Brand, which was not acceptable. Ironically, you know, 20 years later, if you put a picture of Stu and Morrissey up, it's same the same guy. thing. Right. Okay? But when you tell the band this, what do they say? Well, you got this wonderful thing with time that I can now say, I mean, for example, when I Want to Be Your Man came out, there was no, oh, this group was against the Beatles, so, you know, thing. there was none of that. Right. That's part of Keith's rotation of, oh, Andrew knew that, uh, you know, we were going to be the opposite of the Beatles. No, I didn't. Look at it this way. Can you imagine if I was having to talk to the Rolling Stones and I said, your greatest ability is that you're unlike another group? I mean, what is that saying? That's a negative as opposed exactly. to a positive. Exactly. And with Ian Stewart, uh, all I can say is the Stones didn't stop me. Because they were that hungry for success or yeah. that's their identity? Um, oh, I think the real hunger came after America, but um, uh, probably as a result of Alan Klein, but we can get to that. Um, it, it, I don't know. You know, it's like, remember, kids are cruel. It's Lord of the Flies. It's a dropping wisdom orange, here. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so I don't even think you can apply. Were they that ambitious, or were they? You know that it's just you don't think when you're that age that I could be like you know destroying somebody that you weren't because they needed the van, <laughs> which he drove. <laughs> which he drove. And Brian was the only one who was a bit the idiot of the day when he's you know don't worry, Stu, we'll take care of you for the rest of your life. You'll be an equal partner with us. Was he? No. Of course not. No, of course not. But but he lasted longer than me. Right. I mean, I did have a moment in the uh, 80s because his wife used to work for me. And I was staying at their house and I'm in the house by myself and he comes in after having played golf with uh, Glenn Johns. And I thought, well, <laughs> if there's ever going to be a moment, this is it. But he knew how it had worked. He played piano on the, you know, it was he played all the blues pianos. He had the van. The, he had a wonderful run in the 80s tour when it was him and Ian McLagan as the things. And uh, he also was one of the few people who picked Satisfaction. Okay, let's not jump too far ahead. So <clears throat> Not Fade Away comes out. And how far does that go on the chart? Number four. Number four. And then, okay. Now, now, we're, over, now we're over buying. 
We don't have to buy it up the charts anymore. Right. We also, in the interim, had an EP, which is, uh, do you want to explain to them or shall I? I think today they know what an EP is because EPs are now Coming a hip back. thing again. All right, good. Then an EP, there's only two acts in the world that had five songs instead of four on an EP, and it's us and Elvis. Um, Jailhouse Rock was, you know. But, uh, and we, um, the EP, we did a version of You Better Move On, the Arthur Alexander thing. And that went between, um, in between. Um, Not Fade Away and Tell Me. Yeah, yeah. Or, well, Tell Me's on the album. Okay. Right? Um, so it's either after Not Fade Away or before Not Fade Away. Probably after. I think it's like April 64. That went to number 11 in the six, in the singles chart. So they're paying 11, double the price and it still goes to number 11. And you better move on. It was killer. I mean, him on a TV show with the French sweater and that pff, to die for. Right? Um, and next, I'm in a panic. I don't know what to do except I decide maybe I can hold it back. It's while I've got to give myself thinking time. So I decide to release Little Red Rooster. I figure that'll hold it. You know, I mean, I think, you know, what, what, what are we doing next? Slow it down. Have a difficult record. It was too late. There were 100, orders of 180,000, and it went straight to number one the first week. Little Red Rooster flies right up the charts, yep. contrary to your expectation, yeah. and you're panicking again. No, got used to it. Okay, exposure therapy. So what was the move after Little Red Rooster? Uh, we're now starting to deal with America. Now, are you pushing to get in the door or are they clamoring to have you come? No, nobody's clamoring at all. I mean, we were worse than the Sex Pistols. <laughs> you know, I mean, you had a core following, most of whom are following you because nobody else is. Well articulated. Right. And in some instances, um, the promoters didn't show. I mean, we're playing in Sacramento. The promoter doesn't show. I don't know where they went off with the money. Uh, we played about 10 dates in, in Texas. We're playing with Bobby V and Diane Renee and a some performing seals at a state fair. When you say the, the promoter doesn't show, I mean, you get to the gig and there's nobody there? No, well, the, 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 the actual promoter, your local Bill Graham, has right. decided it's not to turn up. So we're left in the hands of assistants or what. A lot of the gigs, I mean, we did okay in, say, Chicago or okay with Sid Bernstein in, in New York. But once you got to the B places, Nobody knew, nobody cared, and nobody showed up, including the promoter. So there was no infrastructure. It's not like exactly. Live Nation and AEG right. today. No, no, no. And how do you get the television gigs? Uh, through We were with GAC. Um, That's an agency. Yes, an agency. And they, so we would do Clay Cole. I'd rather have done Joe Pine. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, I don't think most of my audience knows Joe Pine, but keep going. Well, okay. Um, and uh because of I had done PR, made a point of doing PR for Phil Spector in around the time of Not Fade Away. So that's like he came to England like February of 64, right? And went back on the plane with the Beatles. He arrived on the plane with them. In, in JFK or then yeah. Kennedy. Idlewild or whatever it was called, right? right? And um, he was at the Not Fade Away session. He was at your not fade away session. Yeah. Did he weigh in? He played the maracas. And did he tell you how to record it? No. Okay. 
I mean, uh, it's a mono studio. It's room. No, it's room I, sound, I have to right? ask, interacting with Phil at that time. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Here's this, this, the, the, the defining time for Phil Spector's life is the article that Tom Wolfe wrote about right. him. And he then decided that's who he was and that was the beginning of everything else. I don't really think River Deep Mountain High not going to – you know, he's, he was already nuts. You know, I mean, it went to number one in England. You grab what you can. So it only went to number 98 in America. Fuck it. Um, he was just a pleasure – he had a gleam in his eye that I didn't see again until the last prison picture. Okay. In that whatever the medication he's on now, it's working. And there was a picture out of him. Remember, we weren't there. You mean in his so-called castle? We weren't there when it happened. Right. And you're saying, you're implying what? I'm implying that um, the same as Armand Erdogan, there's a certain age you stop going out. And now what you can bring. Lost me. All right. Well, when you go out at that age, right. what you're going to end up with is trouble to start with. Well, Ahmed still went out to a good degree. Okay. Yes, he certainly did. Went and he shouldn't have gone down those final steps at the beacon and into a room with Keith. Right. Well, okay. We can rewrite history. I mean, we could try to change history, but let's go no, back. No, I'm not. I just no, take no, no, lessons. No, 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 that's not what I meant. I what I'm trying to say is, myself. no, no, that, that's <laughs> not. That, I, I misspoke. What I mean is, yeah. you know, it would be great if he didn't go down those stairs, but he did. He did. Is exactly. my is exactly. my point? Yeah. Not that I'm saying that the facts are not correct. Yeah. What I'm saying, though, okay, Phil so, was great. You okay, know, I okay. Mean, he he was giving. Um, he hadn't closed up. Now, when the Stones are on tour in America, is that also when they go into chess studios? Gene Pitney was at Not Fade Away, too. Really? Yeah. I called Gene. Gene Pitney was in Paris. We had done, uh, we, Mick and Keith wrote the follow-up to 24 Hours to Tulsa, which was only really a hit. It only went to 56 here. In England, it went just went top 10. So that was their first top 10 song as writers. Then came Marion Faithful. And Pitney was in Paris, and... The Not Fade Away session was going very, very badly because when you've heard something in a room, like in the room that we, I lived with with Keith, when you've heard a song, someone play you a room, play, play it to you in a room and you hear the whole thing, now you've got to go and get it, right? Um, and it was not going well. And... In this time, this time, for once, an audience helped get it to the point. Normally, an audience in the studio fucking kills it, right? So you got Pitney come in with Brandy, Phil Spector come in in a red corduroy coat, and he played the maracas. Two of the Hollies were there, um, and Peter Meaden, who, as you know, for five minutes was the first manager of the Who before Kit Lambert and Chris Dem. So there was a cheerleading section in this little room that's about this size. So it's room sound that makes the record. You know. Well, how long did it take Like, you tell to get... me, for example, you love tell me. Right. The reason the guitar sounds so great is because it's leaking into Charlie's bass drum. How long did it take you to get Not Fade Away? Uh, two hours, which is a long time. <laughs> okay. Right? And they were so relieved that uh, Mick, and, uh, excuse me, Mick and Spectre go outside uh, and sit on the staircase, and they come up with little by little. So, you tour America. You mentioned Satisfaction. How does Satisfaction come to be? He wrote it, actually. 
Keith wrote it in um, the Scientology building in Clearwater. Now, the rumor is that he woke up in the middle of the night and slung it into his tape recorder. Yes, he did. That is true. Yeah, they, they, and, and the Scientologists supposedly had the room, the whole floor exercised to... To get rid of that? Get rid of it. <laughs> right. Whatever. So that's how we never had another satisfaction. Right. So, but the one amazing thing about Satisfaction, as brilliant as that record is with the iconic sound, he cannot play it live. He no, can, and I will tell you why. Um, okay, to start with... We'd attempted, okay, at the end of the first tour, the first tour was basically so fucking disastrous, right? Because we'd ended up in Texas. You know, you don't, we were ending on a bummer with Bobby right. V and the fucking Seals, right? Um, and I called Phil and, I mean, I don't know why I didn't do it myself, but I asked him to do it. Get us into Chess Studios because I need them going back to England with a smile on their faces. Right can't have this. So know. it was all your idea? Yeah. And we go into chess and they do 13 things in two days, including It's All Over Now, because Murray the K had at a party of Bob Cruz had put the Valentino's record in my hand and said, Andy, if you cut this with the boys, because <laughs> he was the sixth stone as well as the fifth beetle, um, you'll have a hit. And he was right, right? And 13 other things, Keys to the Highway, all those kind of things. And we did try Satisfaction. Oh, really? Yeah. Don't ask me where the tapes are. Abco don't have them. The Stones don't have them. They're gone, right? Um, and uh, it sounds like, to me, it sounded like the Rooftop Singers. Which, of course, is not satisfaction. No. But it's got that thing. So we get to L.A., but and very. this is the only time that um, in my history, in my time with them, that... We tried to cut something again. There was no nothing else. Everything else was done, done, no more. You know, no returning to anything. And Jack Nietzsche, um, whom we knew through Sonny Bono. How did you know Sonny Bono? Through Phil Spector. Okay. Um, and Phil Spector sent Sonny Bono to meet us at the airport. <laughs> I mean, okay. It's wonderful. The car. The first time we saw records, the Caesar and Cleo records, in the trunk. You didn't see records in England, right? What do you mean you didn't see records? Well, you know, they could have been in Decca. If you went, had to go to Decca, you never saw the factory. Okay. You, never saw, you know, they could have been doing baked beans, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, we're in the middle. You know, most songs got 20 minutes, 40 minutes to take the shape they were going to take. And Jack Nietzsche, well, I communicated with you about this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, took Keith down to one of the shops on Sunset because we're recording at RCA on Sunset and Iver. And he comes back with a fuzz box just in time. Serendipitous. Yeah. And as you, as you know, this was not new. 62, 63, Eddie Hodges and Frankie Lane with Jack, when Jack Nietzsche had been doing arrangements and either they couldn't afford the horn section or whatever, here comes the fuzz, Right sounding more like muted trombones and things. And Keith, of course, <clears throat> since then has gone, oh, no, man, you know, like, um, the record wasn't finished. I was going to do horns. With what, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> we weren't even meant to be recording in America, let alone bringing union horn sections in. Okay, so he comes back with the fuzz box. And you plug it in and the record just comes together that fast? record gets made. Okay. But to your point of why it's not good live... Uh, it's a difficult song to sing, 
And so what I did was, uh, with Brian and Keith, put in a huge bed of acoustics that gave the voice somewhere to land, that once it had landed, I then took them down from 10 volume down to three. Wow. I mean, so he, in other words, as you know, he's singing the verses like a ballad. Yes. Can't do that on stage because there's no... There's no acoustic guitars right. underlining it. Right. Okay. You cut Satisfaction. Do you immediately know you have a worldwide smash? Yes. And how long until it comes out? It comes out uh, in America first, which was slightly offensive at the time to England, but uh, it did. Um, you just knew, man. I mean, it's like... No, that's what I tell people. People say, you know, when you achieve excellence, you know. There's a yeah. smile on your face. That's it. Well, but, it, well, because it's actually having the appeal to you that a record you've loved that you've had nothing to do with. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's on that level. Pre right. Previously, records, whether it's Kathy's Clown or whatever it is, or it's records that have changed your life, and then suddenly you're in the studio and part of whatever has made it, that's it. So the record comes out. Does it totally change the landscape of the band and the business? Yeah, because by then we're already seven or eight, five, no, wait a minute, September, August, September. We're already four or five months in with Alan Klein. So tell us how you hook up with Alan Klein. Um, Alan Klein represented uh, Mickey Most in England. And you've got Mickey Most with, um, uh, um, he's a millionaire. Right. <laughs> okay, so, right, for a week at least. And... Um, I want. I don't want to talk to Alan about the Stones. I want to talk to. I want about immediate. I, I, I need money for it. Right? Okay, just for those who don't know. So the Stones are going, and you decide to start immediate. How immediate records? Uh, because I was fed up dealing with the record companies. I was probably smoking too much. I rather wanted to control my own destiny without having to leave the office. I didn't want to have to keep going, and I was busy. You, you know, know, keep pitching. So you yeah. go to Alan looking for money. No, I go ask, want him to get distribution. Should I start the record company? Oh, obviously, in the back of my mind, I had, what else can we do? But right. I'm not going to walk in and say, I need help. Right. But of he course. smelled it. Um, he actually thought Eric Easton controlled everything because um, he'd done his homework, been doing his homework already. I was saying, I need, um, the same way as he'd placed Mickey Most so well. And they were, well, you know, he didn't just do a deal for Mickey Most. They were placed, Hermes Hermes was on MGM. The Animals, he was stuck on that one because that had to end up on wherever it was originally. And then the other one, he had three hits at once. Um, Nashville Teens, yeah, okay. Um, and I just wanted help that way. Eventually, he started pitching me. I said, you better pitch Mick and Keith. If they say yes, we'll get into bed. And what was the goal of getting to bed? What was his sales pitch? Um, I don't remember what his sales pitch was. I know what I wanted. And what I wanted is I was already in trouble with Eric Easton. The two or three years was nearly up with Decker. Eric Easton wanted out. He wanted to do a deal where they were going to get $600,000 of their own money, um, the money that was going to come. Because, as you know, if we sold records in England, by now in a very short period of time, we build up a lot of royalties abroad, not America, but in Europe, that, that don't have to be paid for another 12 months. So mm -hmm. we're very famous, but no petrol, right? right? And um, 
I kind of knew by instinct. I mean, obviously, I'm articulating it better today, but the street instinct told me, if I don't get Eric Easton handled, I could be in trouble. Because he had, the same way as Alan once said to me, you know how I managed to take advantage of you, which years later was an incredible <laughs> sentence to say to somebody. Of course. Uh, and the re thing was that, um, because he was 13 years older than me. Now, is that all there is? You know? No. No, right. But, um, and we were, uh, and so you've got this wonderful destiny of, of time where we've met Alan, then we cut satisfaction, then he's got that to run with. In terms of the advantage factor of him, uh, of things that had nothing to do with the money that was, there was nothing to do with, is that London Records was really a pistol. It was uh, run by an old war buddy of Sir Edward Lewis. It was down on 26th Street and 10th, and they had Willie Mitchell, but so what? And uh, how do we get rise above when the Beatles are on Capitol, uh, Manfred Mann or whatever, you know, they're on a division of that or Ascot, whatever the label was. And, so, and we're not even down in the boondocks. Yes. It's, so the energy of Alan and Alan repeating the same tricks that we didn't know he'd done with Sam Cooke by taking billboards in Times Square and things like that add um, a, a, a razzmatazz and flash to it that we couldn't, I mean, I'd be, I, as you know, the first album, uh, one of the selling points of the first album was that it had no title on it in England. Mm -hmm. Because of communication, and they fucked me. They put England's newest hit makers Of course, in America. It. Right. Um, so, eh, you know. Um, and then, but of course, the key then was, now we need a follow-up. Okay. So... Alan's goal was to get enough cash and a better deal so he could squeeze Eric out. No, I don't know what his goal was. Okay, he wanted what he wanted. I wanted what I wanted. Eric Easton was settled five years later. You know, um, uh, he wanted the stones. You had any idea you were getting in bed with the devil? No. You can remember, we're only um, 65, uh, 20 years after the war. Americans are still terrific. Okay, so you get in bed with Alan. He was American. Because one of the, one of the, all right, the point is, Bob, that when we got to America in 64, suddenly we're in a country where we're not in a dirty business. I have to digest that. Well, um, all of the, including Dick Rowe, who ha was good because he's not the man who turned down the Beatles to me. He's the man who signed the Rolling Stones. But they were all hoping we'd go away. Like that would go back to Mantovani and Davy Crockett hats and Nat King Cole, <laughs> right? Just like today, people were hoping to get back to rock from hip hop. There you are, right? So, go, li so live, breathe heavily. So, right. was, did it go well with Alan for a while? Oh yes. Okay, and then when do you start to realize they're out for you? Oh no, it. Where, to start with, there is a point of realization where we haven't got what Alan promised. But we haven't got the time to do anything about it. Because, what did he promise that you didn't get? Well, um, the, we uh, supposedly were going to continue to own our own records. Um, it's the greatest um, three-card Monty trick of all time. If you say to somebody that 
um, yeah, you can own your own masters. Uh, it's going into this company, and it's the same name as your British publishing company. If it's got limited stuck on the end of it, you think, oh, limited, yeah, that's English. Like, uh, we, we had everything we wanted for three days. And what happened after those three days? Uh, the Stones were advised by Alan that um, they couldn't own it or receive the money without horrendous tax consequences, so he would, and he'd pay them out over the next 20 years. They and you did not understand. Of course not. This is where, do you know how I managed to take advantage of you, comes in. Although I heard from his nephew that you had positive words to say about Alan at his funeral. Always, man. If you're stuck with somebody for 50 years and responsible for them putting the food on your table, it'll kill you if you hate them. <laughs> he was always a very attractive person. How does the sun set on your relationship with the Stones? Um, me taking too much drugs. Uh, me, as Keith put in his book, while we and Andrew liked the same music and wanted the same goals, in other words, singles, I'm still not into Muddy Waters. I'd rather watch Lionel Richie. I mean, I want hits. So when it came to that stage where suddenly the public are taking drugs, which was, you know, here you've got the underbelly of Vietnam. Uh, in England, we had the unrest that was coming up in Europe where the, suddenly the, the equivalent of an FM market and suddenly you can make albums. I was making albums. I mean, one of the great things through Between the Buttons Aftermath and that is the Stones are completely seamless. One of the things that places them above Forget the Beatles, they're in the league of their own, right? But the, all the other stuff, whether it's the animals, man for man, the whole is the other bands were deigning to be commercial for one cut, like For Your Love by the Yardbirds. Exactly. They were not seamless in that we, all our stuff, EPs or LPs, was all as good as the singles. So the last album you were involved with was? Uh, Between the Buttons. Many people consider that to be the best Stones record. That isn't necessarily my opinion, but people, no. people see that as a great record in an era. That was 66, and right? And we thank Ray Davis for it. Why do we thank well, Ray? Well, it's, 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 it's a strange thing where Mick and Keith are writing about England when they're not in England. And it has some of that flippancy. Flowers was the last one I put together. Okay. Um, I left in the middle of Satanic Majesties. Um, Basically, I mean, the same way as I got to the Stones, say, 48 hours ahead of the rest of the world, I left before I was asked to. And so I, you realized this was self-indulgent, you thought it was going off the deep end, and you said, I'm done? I couldn't. This was the first time that we were recording back in England, apart from overdubs, and that they were arriving in the studio and cutting the tracks and then writing the songs on top of the tracks. And I couldn't get behind that. I, I wasn't... Uh, I do dreams, not money. I didn't sit there and think, oh, I better negotiate my way out of this. I just was, it was three weeks of hell. If you can't c contribute, if you want to be a vegetable, okay, or you're going to sit so, there. So there was no consciousness of, I want to stay in this, but from based from my bank account. No. But what was the status of immediate at that point when small faces were just coming together? Uh, that, we'd had one hit with Hang On Sloopy that we got from Burt Burns. Um, we'd had a very expensive number one that Mick had produced with Chris Fowler of Out of Time. Um, it was draining blood, but, and so it was getting to the end because I couldn't keep financing it with my Stones money because that was coming to an end.
or sort of coming to an end. You know, I mean, we're still here. Right. Um, but um, it, and we hadn't got the small faces. That was very expensive too, because that kind of involved twenty-five grand in a paper bag for Don Arden to find a way out of breaking the deal they had with Decca. And um, and the small faces, well, you know, um, the, 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 they were great in the studio, but they were not a band. They were a group. You could never. They, there was no reliability with them on stage. They were children. Or as Keith, like when Keith said about Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy's great, but the kids he plays with. Right. And did you put Humble Pie together? Yes. Well, no, I had a choice. Steve Marriott was had had enough of Ronnie Lane um, and the Small Faces, and the other three. Um, he he wanted Peter Frampton. So he knew Frampton and saw Frampton as a hot guitar. Yeah. And so we couldn't have gone with whatever the faces were going to become and Humble Pie. And Humble Pie was definitely an adventure, man. You know, I mean, you uh, okay, they, it became realized after Immediate went down with D'Antoni and A&M. But I thought, here's another great shot. You can't get in the way of these people, except when Steve Marriott got in the way of himself. Right. So th- what year do you basically close up shop up? 69. An immediate, okay. And then you're thinking, what are you, so high on drugs that you don't even know what you're thinking? Oh, I know what I'm thinking. Uh, I have the same now economic problems as the Rolling Stones do, and um, we've all got to leave England. Okay. And they go to France, and I go to Connecticut. Uh, Wilton, 605. Of course, very close to where I grew up. 605 Richfield Road. And (laughs) cracks me up. And you continue to produce records and make deals and you do that for about another 10 years? Uh, more than that. More than that. I do. I had this interesting segue with Rare Earth Records where I produced stuff for them because well, after they had Get Ready, they thought they could have a white label. And so all the old white people who were like had had the, like Bob Crew was there, I was there, Bobby Darren was there, uh, all producing stuff for Rare Earth. So now, 50 years later, with this perspective, what did we learn? Have fun getting it done. Have fun getting it. If you, you know, this is a cliche question, I'll ask it anyway. If you had to do it over again, would you do anything differently? Absolutely nothing. I mean, to me, the life is simply, it, it comes down to uterus and location. Where, you know, who drops you and where they drop you as to what, <laughs> no, right? I mean, it's simple. You can't, you, you, you're, the worst thing you can do is think you were responsible. And in the time you have left, what, anything you want it's to It's only autumn, Bob. It's only autumn. <laughs> no, I'm not saying it's over. Okay. Okay. But any goals, any achievements, any dreams yet unfulfilled? I'm, I'm very lucky that with all due respect to the stones, once I got... Uh, over the drug and alcoholism thing, every day is just as exciting as any day was with them because life brings you that if you fucking embrace it and kiss it. I mean, uh, Polanski could have been the most depressing, depressed guy who, I mean, what he went through, but uh, um, I, the thing I learned from him was, my God, he went through, I mean, you know, nearly dead at 11, Poland and so on. So you couldn't meet a more positive fucker in your life. And it's your choice. And 
So you wake up every day and you say, let's see what the world brings me. No, let's see what I can take from the world for me. If I don't take care of myself, there's absolutely no way I can take care of anybody else. And so a little bit more concretely, what might you take for yourself? I'd be grateful. Um, I would pace myself. Um, I would make sure I got enough sleep. And uh, I wouldn't kill myself trying to get anything done because it's going to get done or it's not going to get done. You're just watching yourself do it. Do you think that the landscape of both culture and politics always maintains the same or are we in a worse position, better position? You got the brainwashing of technology that if you actually are one of the unemployed or the underemployed or self-employed and you got time to watch this crap on television, you will notice like Vance Packard and the Hidden Persuaders that you're getting the same loop of information every 30 seconds and you're being brainwashed and suppressed into absolutely nothing. Uh, for those who care to remember the year we came to America, you had Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, come on, you just haven't got the barrage of it going out, but he did his press conference from the bathroom mm -hmm. when we arrived in America. Uh, one of the many possibilities was that he could have killed Kennedy. Yes. I mean, it was a different era because we didn't know that much. I mean, now we know where everybody is and everybody's reachable 24-7. Yeah. You know, we didn't know that FDR basically couldn't walk. Right. And, you know, it's a very interesting time. Of course, you know, you live through, we've, we've lived long enough to see a couple of revolutions where Which music was. drove the culture. Yeah. Then technology drove the culture. And it's interesting as these changes occur that people believe that things don't change. Music will always survive. It's important. But just like you talk about Mary Quant and Carnaby Street and all that other stuff, they have these peaks. And then the peak becomes something it, else. It, it, I agree with you, but it also has something to do with your age and where you're coming from. I made a point in April of this year, last year, to go and see Justin Bieber in Bogota. I knew he would be great. You cannot. I hate to say this because it's going to come out as a soundbite, but Justin Bieber is great. Thank you. I mean, yeah. I the way I do this, the way I, uh, you know, the recent tracks, which are now two years old, I was listening on Spotify. I'm hiking in the mountains and I'm just clicking through the tracks. I have a little clicker on my Sennheiser headphones. And all of a sudden I hear go, what is this? Uh -huh. And I got to pull out my phone. You know, those happen to be great tracks. I yes. mean, it's Justin Bieber. What yeah. can you say? So great. It's like a great movie. Well, you see, when he was in Colombia, that's where he picked up this next record, this Panamanian This Despacito. Yeah. Like he just picked it up. I know the people. He went into the studio in Colombia. He did it in 24 hours. He got... Uh, so he did it when he was there on tour. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is someone... You know, and also the other gift, which I didn't allow for, because I, you know, I had not seen him live, is... When he and you can't rehearse this. I mean, you, you're born. You're born with this, and it goes with the rest and everything. When he spoke to that audience, it was like Dobie Gillis meets Elvis. <laughs> okay, it was magic. It had as much volume and intensity as all the records and the songs and what he was doing on stage. So, if you have a few, we have four hours now. Would you read a book? Would you go for a walk? Would you watch a movie? Would you watch a television show? Would you listen to, you know, listen to music? What, what? I don't. You don't listen to I, music? What, I go to see it. And you don't listen because? I will listen if I'm not choosing. <laughs> because you think music is best performed live or you get no. the energy? Um, uh, 
I, you know, look, when I got here two days ago, we're mm -hmm. in Los Angeles, okay? It's weird uh, in that my place, uh, you know, I've been coming here since 64, and it's RCA, and it's uh, Liberty Records, and it's Sunset, it's this, um, and now all that used to be inside a building. You were creating music, you were making it, you were still outsiders. Now it's wall-to-wall -wall restaurants, everything, and invariably it's some music that I've made, or music that I'm familiar with that was made at the time. If I can hear it in a supermarket, I'm going to play it at home. I'm going to be at Rock Hudson showing his old movies. What I come across, I will let in, but the, the, the reward is seeing stuff live. And that's a gentleman who lived through it and is still alive. Andrew, so great to have you. We could go on for hours. I mean, we're, we'll have to do it the next time you're in <laughs> okay. Los Angeles. Thank you. Because we have so much more to talk about a little deeper into those Stones albums and immediate and your uh, era in uh, Connecticut. Never mind, we didn't even get into the Scientology thing, which oh, is well. a whole other thing. <laughs> well, but thanks so much for thank being you, here. Thank you, Bob, and thank you for being so well. Till next time, it's Bob Lefsetz with Andrew Lou Goldham on the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. That wraps up another episode of the Bob Left Sets Podcast. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there. Hell, you can do so many other things with your time, so I really appreciate you joining me. Be sure to check out previous episodes if you missed them, and don't forget to subscribe on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.